welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 45 for March 2015. I am your hostess, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always, my co-host, Mike. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Quinn. And you? I'm fabulous. Apple You're too fabulous. fabulous. Eh, well, you know, I'm trying to keep up with Carrington. Yeah, it's a tough job. It is. What's going on? Uh, not very much. Uh, some of our listeners may have noticed we've got uh, exciting new bumpers in our uh, in our shows. That's Thanks. right. Yeah. yeah. Thanks very much to my friend Kelly, who is fabulous and has the most amazing voice of anyone I know. Uh, amongst our friends, we joke that we would like to just sit and have her read the phone book to us because <laughs> she has such an amazing voice. So uh, all the way from Amsterdam. So thank you, Kelly, for recording those new bumpers for us. Yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah. So uh, we've got a lot of news to talk about because uh, just the way the schedule is lined up, where uh, we are recording quite a bit after our last show, and this being the amazing Apple II community, there is tons to talk about. So I think we're going to keep this short so that we can get into our interview and roll on into the news. So um, why don't you set us up there, Mike? Uh, with us, we have this month, we have Mark Kriegsman. And uh, Mark actually reached out to us last month with an email about a, a really cool project that he was doing with his Apple II. And I did a little bit of a research because the, the name sounded sort of familiar to me. I was like, mm, where have I heard that before? And he uh, he wrote Star Blaster for Piccadilly Software and did some other cool Apple II stuff. And we're going to talk to him right now. Hello, Mark. Hi there. Good to meet you all. How are you? I'm doing well. We're, uh, we're surviving the winter in Boston. Hmm, chilly. <laughs> yeah, although by the time this airs, hopefully we'll be well into spring. Well, with the way I edit, it'll be mid-July or so. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> so, Mark, um, you, it looks like you've got a long history with the Apple II. Why don't you start at the very beginning? When did you first lay eyes on one of these machines? I think I probably first laid eyes on the Apple II around 1979. Um, I was in a, a summer program for high school students at Trenton State College in New Jersey, uh, and they had some there, and I uh, I saw them, and I was I was hooked right away, uh, particularly because the alternative that they had for us to work on was a uh, an IBM 360 mainframe with punch cards and Fortran, uh, and I think uh, I got hooked then. I uh, didn't have one at home, uh, really wanted one, but was able to sort of borrow time on some of my friends' uh, Apple IIs and start learning how to code both in BASIC and then 6502 assembly. And by 1981, I guess I had teamed up with Jeff Engelstein and started working on the game that would become Star Blaster. We published through Piccadilly, uh, who had also published Falcons the previous year. It was a, mm -hmm. I guess I can say now, as a clone of, uh, of Phoenix, the arcade game. Um, of course, Back then, we had to, you know, pretend that there was no relationship at all between these things. In 1982, we published uh, we published Star Blaster, and you know, I was the happiest 16 year old on the block at that point. You were 16? Oh man, <laughs> another one! Wow, we've, yeah, we've I was... been talking a lot lately about we've been talking a lot lately about how young a lot of these uh, game makers were at the time, and we had no idea. So uh, I guess we can add you to the list. Yeah, I was. Uh, Jeff was a couple years older, uh, and I, I guess I was the youngest of the group uh, there at Piccadilly. Piccadilly was a, a essentially a software publishing uh, entity that grew out of the local computer store uh, that was selling apples and pets and so on. 
Um, and hmm. a, a bunch of the the young folk in the area had taken to writing games for fun. And the guys who ran the computer shop saw an opportunity there and started up started up Piccadilly Software to, to publish all the games that we were putting out. Um, and I guess in total, there were about five or six that came out of Piccadilly uh, over a couple of years. And you worked on all of them? Uh, no, Jeff and I worked on uh, Star Blaster in particular. Um, I was in the room while a bunch of the other ones were under development, <laughs> but um, but I definitely don't get title credit on any of those. Um, it was more swapping code fragments and help me get the bird's feet looking green in this image and how do I debounce the game button and that kind of stuff. So a lot more sharing techniques and code than, you know, than sort of being principal authors on any of the other ones. Did you ever regret uh, not taking up Fortran on punch cards? Well, <laughs> now you notice that I didn't say that I didn't take up Fortran on punch cards because I, I did take up Fortran on punch cards in addition to the the uh, the Apple II, the Basic, and the 6502. And in fact, I still have a bunch of those Fortran punch cards. And every now and then, somebody at work will make some derogatory comment about Fortran, and I will pull out one of these cards and wave my code at them and say, <laughs> and say "You just back off." So when you when you get nostalgic, do you type in some code on the Apple II and then come back tomorrow and hit run? <laughs> uh, as I was doing the project uh, that that we'll get to in a minute, I guess um, I did set up. Uh, an Apple IIe on my dining room table with a monitor and the whole deal. And uh, my daughter, Eleanor, who's 12, looked at the thing like it was from outer space. And um, and uh, and this was a IIe and turned it on and I showed her how to do some basic programming on it. And I said, of course, this wasn't my oldest computer. My oldest computer was an Apple II Plus. And I say it was so old that it didn't come with lowercase letters <laughs> and they cost extra and I couldn't afford it. And Again, she looked at me like I had three heads. You're like, how can a computer not have lowercase letters? You know, but <laughs> it's it, it's funny. That's a very it's one of those things. It's really hard to explain to people nowadays that yeah, lowercase letters cost extra because ROM was really expensive and there just wasn't room for all of those letters. Right, and instead we got what we we, we got what what would later become the HTML blink tag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got yeah, flashing I, I think I have something like 8,000 fonts on my computer right now. But uh, yeah, at the time, uh, lowercase letters did cost extra. Um, right. But the uh, the best thing about uh, the Apple II coming from where you came from is that when you drop a floppy disk, your code doesn't scatter across the floor. You just pick it up and put it back in. The lines of code mm -hmm. stay, stayed in order. Yeah, that was... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, when I was in school, we were... Uh, we were just sort of past that era, but we, you know, our professors were from the punch card era and they all had this sort of thousand yard stare when you asked them what it was like to drop a box of the punch card. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being in NOM, I think. I, I found out later, I so I, I was a student when I was doing this, but I found out later that professional programmers who were using punch cards would, they had a special program that would number the cards and would repunch a new deck of cards with essentially with line numbers on them. And if they ever dropped the deck, they could then reload it into the, into the mainframe and run a sort program. And while it wouldn't sort the old cards, it would punch a new set of cards in order again. Ah, that's really clever. Yeah. So that, that was a problem, and lo and behold, engineers had a solution to it. 
<laughs> a very slow, expensive solution, but a solution nonetheless. <laughs> and that's why you get that thousand-yard stare. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the uh, the the uh, lower budget folks just wrote numbers on the corners of the cards with a pencil so that they could sort them by hand if they ever had to. Yeah, I think the academic solution is you you hand it to your grad student and say, "Here, fix this." <laughs> there you go. I like that. Yeah, it's like that old saw about uh, uh, how NASA spent millions of dollars developing a pen that would write upside down and in space and the Russians just used a pencil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I did uh, I did do a little bit of uh, uh, Fortran on punch cards back in the day, but really the Apple II was what grabbed my attention because it just seemed like you could have a lot more fun with it. You know, I was a student at the time and it, it was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And publishing these games uh, through Piccadilly was uh, was a blast because, you know, here my friends are you know, flipping burgers at the local joint. You know, I'm I'm slaving away in a dark room in front of a screen and nobody knows what's going on, except suddenly a year later, you know, I get a royalty check, you know, <laughs> which probably, you know, is equivalent to the, the same amount that they'd earned in the equivalent amount of time flipping burgers, except that the next month I got another one. And <laughs> it went on like that for a little while, which was great. And was, I'm going to say, probably my first uh, entrepreneurial activity. I've gone on subsequently. I've started a couple of companies. Um, you know, I look back and this sense that, you know, in those days, anybody who wanted to could just kind of dig in and do it, I think definitely shaped the way I think about business and personal endeavors these days. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I've been thinking a lot about that lately. You know, the barrier to entry for software developers was so low at the time and then it got really, really high for a long time, and it hasn't come back down again since mobile. You know, uh, anybody can now pick up and develop, you know, an Android or, or an iPhone game. And uh, so we're kind of back to that point. But yeah, for 30 years there, the barrier to entry just seemed to keep getting higher and higher and higher. You needed more and more expensive equipment and more and more, you know, fancy software and education and so on to do it. So it's funny to see it coming back down again. There's also this sort of vibrant community around microcontroller developers, people doing programming on Arduino. And once again, you know, we see a lot of open source uh, libraries, but also, I mean, the, the barrier there to just kind of go and get the equipment and get started with it and see what you can do, uh, the barrier is very low again. And I think a lot of people have fun tinkering at, at the, at, almost at the hardware level with it. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, we've talked about this on the show as well, that it's that we're in a real uh, renaissance of, of kind of hacking. And, you know, nowadays, nowadays they call it the maker movement. But, uh, uh, yeah, there's just so many great sort of hardware development boards, uh, you know, available that are so approachable, so easy to use and so well documented that uh, it's just really a lot of fun for anyone to do. And, and one of my big, uh, I guess, proverbs that I always throw at people is that uh, if you're playing with an Arduino, then you should play with a retro computer because they're the same thing, but more fun because they have cool graphics and sound and, you know, keyboards and stuff. So, you know, an, an Arduino is just a Apple II with no keyboard or video circuit. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and, which of course leads us right into your project, which is what I love so much about it. Because here you are doing exactly this thing that I'm always uh, telling people to do. So why don't you tell us about your project? Okay, so I, I sort of describe it to people this way: is is back in the day, you know, I hacked on the Apple II, and that was where I did all my my geeky tinkering. These days, uh, I am the co-author with Daniel Garcia 
of a, a, a library for Arduino and ARM-based microcontrollers called FastLED. That's a library that lets you hook up one of these microcontrollers to a, a long string of intelligent programmed LEDs, RGB LEDs, and do all kinds of animations and patterns and, um, and designs. And people do wearable electronics with it, and people do home decoration, and people do holiday decorations with it. And we put a lot of time and energy and love into this library, and we support a lot of different microcontroller boards and a lot of different LED strip protocols. And at some point, I started thinking, you know, it would be cool if I could somehow fuse these two worlds, the one that I'm in now, of microcontrollers and intelligent LEDs, and the Apple II world that I remember. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought exactly what you said, which is, as you said, the Arduino is an Apple without a screen or keyboard. So conversely, the Apple is an Arduino with a screen and keyboard. So <clears throat> if we can do this on the Arduino, why can't we do it on the Apple? And I suddenly remembered, hey, the game connector port on the back gives me, you know, some TTL level outputs. You know, there's no reason we can't program those to send the serial commands to the uh, LED strips. And uh, lo and behold, not only is it possible, but I did it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, basically treating the Apple II as a, a microcontroller that happens to have, you know, four digital inputs. We would normally call those the, the push-button inputs. Four analog inputs, that's the joystick inputs, and four digital outputs, which are the enunciator lines that I think nobody ever did anything particularly interesting with back in the day. It turns out, actually, there's a fifth digital output that's available, not on the 2GS, but on the 2 and the 2 Plus and the 2E, which is there's a strobe line that's also available on the game connector port. So how this project all comes together goes like this. You take your Apple II, and you take one of these uh, long strips of intelligent LEDs. Sometimes they get called NeoPixels. And you, could, you draw power from somewhere else because you don't want to draw you know, four amps of power out of your Apple. But then you plug the, the data and clock lines from the LED strip into a couple of output pins on the game connector port. And you load up the ver special version of FastLED called FastLED 6502. And you can then program beautiful 24-bit RGB animations for the LED strip that's being powered by your your Apple II. Because I'm a bit of a, an assembly language speed freak, we're able to get up to about 30 frames a second on 100 RGB LED pixels, uh, which I feel pretty good about that, considering that it's a it's a one megahertz machine driving it. So we did this, and normally our our user community in the fast LED world is used to using ARM chips and Arduino boards, and we said, oh yeah, and by the way, we're announcing support for one new platform, the Apple II. And people kind of fell out of their chair <laughs> and said, <laughs> have, you, have you gone back in time here? And we said, well, you know, the machine had those capabilities even then. It's just a question of waiting for somebody to tap it and connect it to the right things. As far as I can tell, so far nobody but me has actually stood it up and got it running. I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from the first other user of this code to say, yeah, I dug my Apple II out of my basement, I hooked up the LEDs, and I have this gorgeous rainbow scrolling around them. Uh, 
Quinn. <laughs> well, you know, unfortunately, I, I absolutely adore this, and, and I love the pictures that you sent. We'll uh, we'll share those in the show notes as well. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, my only Apple II that I have here in my house is a 2C, so it uh, uh, you know, has the external game port that doesn't have yep. all of these same uh, pins that the internal one does on the 2E and 2 Plus. But uh, yeah, I absolutely adore this project, and uh, I'm sure that some of our listeners will definitely try this out. We'll certainly be linking to all the relevant things in the show notes so that people can try this out themselves. Cool. I'm excited about that. The uh, the other thing that, that came up as we were doing this is these LEDs talk essentially an SPI protocol or a modified SPI. And there's a lot of other devices out there that talk SPI protocol. There are Wi-Fi adapters that talk SPI, mm -hmm. which suddenly opens up all kinds of interesting uh, opportunities. Yeah. And I think it's just that a lot of people haven't thought about the game port essentially as being, you know, like microcontroller I.O. pins. Mm -hmm. But that's what it is. And so, you know, anything you can hook up to an Arduino, you can probably drive off the game port, too. Yeah, definitely. That's part of why, uh, yeah, I've been harping on this uh, on the show is that, uh, uh, yeah, there are things like that, these TTL level uh, inputs and outputs that are just sitting there. And, uh, you know, people go to great lengths to get such features in modern machines. You know, the big selling point of the Raspberry Pi is that it's a modern computer with GPIO. But uh, yeah, computers all had that for a long time. We just have to go and dig them out of the closet. Uh, so I'm really happy to see this. We did have at uh, Kansas Fest uh, this year, we had a uh, father and son team who did a bunch of interesting things with the game port. They did a similar thing where they built kind of a, uh, a GPIO setup off of it, and uh, they launched some bottle rockets, and they had a, a roller coaster <laughs> that was driven off of it. So they did some uh, some really fun demos at, uh, at K-Fest with that stuff. So uh, uh, any, uh, any thoughts of bringing this uh, setup to Kansas Fest to show people? So, you know, uh, you know, obviously I've been a, a part of the Apple II community for a long time, although I took a little break there in the middle. Um, <laughs> Many of us did. It's interesting. I even published something in the middle of taking the break in the, in the late 80s. Uh, Jeff and I had built a second video game that we didn't publish through Piccadilly just because we were both busy with college and other stuff, but... After we'd both graduated from college, I realized I still had this thing on the shelf, and I guess this is 1989. And at that point, there was kind of a declining market for new Apple II software, but SoftDisk was always looking for new material. So in 1989, we published a second game through SoftDisk, although we probably hadn't worked on it in five years. And that was called Panic Button, uh, which was one large game that had about 30 little mini games in it. Jeff has gone on to become a, a board game designer, and his, uh, among other things, and one of his latest creations has a whole bunch of mini games in it. And I go, hmm, <laughs> uh, where'd that come from? Do you know the names of any of his games by any chance? I'm a big board gamer, also, actually. Uh, uh, Space Cadets and uh, Space Cadets Dice Duel, and uh, there's a whole there's a whole family there, and he's um, getting getting some success with it. Okay, great. I'm going to look those up. The, the one other thing that was sort of a, a, an aha and final completion of the journey for me about this, this project was ever since I'd been poring over the Apple II technical reference manuals and, you know, reading every detail, what can I do with this, what can I do with that? And I remember seeing that strobe output on the game port and thinking, 
why the heck would you ever want a one clock cycle long pulse coming out the game port? I can't light an LED with that. I can't do anything. Fast forward 25 years or something like that, and I'm thinking about hooking up these SPI-style lights, and suddenly I go, wait a minute. I can use that strobe to run the clock line on the RGB LEDs. And because I can, because when you hit that address, the C040, it pulses down and back up in one cycle. It gives you a faster pulse than if you had to set one of the enunciators low and then high again. And part of the way we were able to get the frame rate so high is because finally we're using that strobe line for something. <laughs> so I had this sense of, aha, finally, now I, you know, finally come around to understand the electrical engineering issue here and like, <laughs> what can we use it for? Ah, it felt good to, to finally, you know, say, now I've used every part of this thing. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, I think, uh, I think at the time people, uh, some people used the strobes, uh, strobe line. There was these uh, joystick multiplexers that you could get that would let you hook up two joysticks to the Apple II, which, of course, you couldn't normally do because there was only, a, you know, a, a single joystick took up both paddles. Uh, but uh, the strobe line was useful there because you could then multiplex the joysticks because you could synchronize uh, with this box uh, to sample the joysticks alternately. And then, you know, uh, you, you would know which joystick you were reading because you could strobe it. Uh, but uh, I suspect that's what that uh, got used for in some cases anyway. So, uh, yeah, this is it's very cool to see. This is the kind of thing that we like to talk about on the show, how, you know, Waz was very big on open architecture and, and uh, expandability and hackability. And, you know, here we are 30, 40 years later, and we're still receiving the dividends of, of those decisions because here we are still, you know, playing with these machines, whereas other machines would not be so interesting to play with if he hadn't, hadn't uh, put all this kind of stuff into it. There's almost like you could say it's an open apple. <laughs> yeah. It's a good name for a podcast. I wonder if that's taken. Mm, huh. mm. Huh. Check that yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to call this show one megahertz because we know that name's gone idle. There's definitely no. nothing using that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> a, lot of pe- a lot of people asked me when they saw this thing running, they said, you know, so this Apple II, is it faster or slower than an Arduino? <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, how do I explain this? And I said, well, <laughs> well, the Arduino is 16 megahertz and this is one. I said, but there's architectural differences too. Like, for example, the 6502 is, and you'll all forgive me for this, is so slow that even a no-op takes two cycles to execute. <laughs> <laughs> and people looked at me and said, really? And I was like, oh, yeah. Not only that, it was state-of-the-art at the time. We loved it. So, <laughs> well, I think if someone asks you, is an Arduino faster or slower, I think the answer is yes. Because, you know, the Apple II is, is much better <laughs> at some things. Uh, but much worse at others. So, yeah, there's Absolutely. definitely yep. it's a sort of apples and oranges, so to speak. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like comparing apples and Arduinos, really. <laughs> oh, boo. All right, I'm not bringing my A game tonight. Sorry, folks. <laughs> just stick to the Commodore jokes, apparently. So, uh, anything else you want to uh, talk about on Fast LED? No, not not particularly. I mean, I think we're, uh, you know, as I said, we, we normally port it to, you know, bigger and better and faster machines, and we look at the pie and things like that. But I think there's a lot of fun to be had sort of bringing the the Arduino aesthetic back to the retro computing world and, you know, hooking up new devices to the old machines and making it all fly. You are going to show up in, in July in Kansas City at Kansas Fest to show us all this, right? You know, 
I gotta say, for the for the first time ever, I'm considering making the pilgrimage. So I, you you, you, <laughs> you, ju- you just may see me out there. <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Thanks very much. Yeah, I have to say, anybody who would build this definitely belongs at Kansas Fest. You, will, you are <laughs> or, guaranteed or, to have a good or time. Or locked up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you should be locked up at Kansas Fest. That's right. So in between there, so between uh, uh, Star Blaster and this Fast LED, there was a big chunk of time there. Were you using a, any Apple II type of stuff in between there, or did it just go in the closet that whole time? Well, it certainly it, it went in the closet, and and maybe I have more Apple II hardware than I should. Um, <laughs> it, it was interesting sort of dragging it all out and dusting it off and seeing if I could put together, uh, you know, one working system that I could get to, to do the development for this on. And at first I thought I was going to do all the development natively on the machine uh, using, you know, the tool chains that I had used before. And, and that always sounds like a good idea at the time. So, yeah, it does, exactly. You know, and then I realized things like, well, I'm also going to have to find some floppy disks to use. And the newest ones I could find were manufactured 20 years ago. So Mm -hmm. not that I had any concerns about media integrity. But the keyboard on the machine that I wanted to use, a couple of the keys didn't work. And they were keys like R and P and the space bar and return. (laughs) And I was like... Hmm, this is going to be challenging without return. I mean, I could type Control M, but uh, <laughs> that's but hardcore. That gets, that gets old pretty quickly. But it it worked well enough that it was able to um, hook it up with a serial card and USB converter. And and I I have to admit I did a bunch of the development in emulator on my MacBook and then pushed the code over and ran it there. Um, sure. And somebody somebody pointed out that I believe it, it was it was you Quinn who said that make install is is too verbose by itself. <laughs> yep. And that you know you should set it up so that just when you when you build it automatically puts it into the disk image. Yep. The difference is when you're actually connecting to the hardware, you can't do the development can't do the testing in the emulator. So I actually had to push the code over every time because it was actually connected to the LED hardware on the app on the physical Apple too. So my my dining room table has taken over with all kinds of equipment for a while. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, yeah, I'm glad. Oh, I was going to say I'm glad you uh, brought that up actually, because well, first of all, let me say that there's there's no shame in developing on an emulator. As much as uh, I love the vintage stuff, I uh, I do all of my development on an emulator as well, and then test on hardware later, just because once you get used to you know 30 inch screens and, and uh, <laughs> code completion and multiple window you know editors and so on, it's just yeah, you can't go and, back. And to it, advanced technologies like cut and paste. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, having said that, uh, I, I've actually been considering a build pipeline that would put the code directly into RAM on the real machine, you know, something along the lines of what ADD Pro does. And I'm sure it's possible. It would just be a case of setting up the tools uh, in just the right way, you know, probably using the same serial port input trick that ADT Pro does. And uh, you maybe you might have to run a small client app on uh, on the Apple II, but that would uh, allow you to d- put your code straight into RAM and not have to do anything with, you know, transferring disk images back and forth or anything like that. So that might be uh, something to to do as well. It's a it's a great idea. I love the idea of you know pushing over you know essentially the the hex dump of the code and just executing it directly. 
so my you know my dining room table wound up you know covered in all the hardware as I was taking apart all these different machines trying to find all the right pieces so that I had one complete working system and drives that could read each other's floppy. I mean you know none of this is news to you, <laughs> but uh, and of course so I, I went through this whole thing uh, including the ordeal with some of the keys not working and everything, finally got all the way to the end and realized I had it all working, uh, but that the reason, the only reason that the keyboard hadn't been working was that the cable had come loose. And oh. I reached underneath and plugged it back in and everything was fine. Uh, I, can't, I can't say I regret using the emulator to, to do the development, but I, I kind of wish I'd been able to do the entire thing just sitting in front of the machine like back in the old days. <laughs> like I say, I think the nostalgia of that wears off pretty quick when you're just trying, <laughs> just trying to get things done. You're you know, for it's floppy drives, and a, absolutely. And you know, so when we when we did the games in uh, 1981 and 1982, 1983, of course everything's copy protected, and the way that was implemented then was, you know, you write your own disk I/O routines. You know, lovingly handcrafting the nibble streams going to the disk controller and this kind of <laughs> stuff. But I remember spending hours and hours and hours and hours debugging that code. And, you know, the first time recently, you know, when I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write some new code. And I looked at one of these emulators and the fact you could stop it and look Mm -hmm. at the registers and you Mm -hmm. could tinker with it and then say, okay, back up. No, go again. And everything. I said, oh my God, (laughs) 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 what I would have killed for that then. Yeah, it's that's the thing. It's really about efficiency. I mean, you know, especially as we get older and we have, you know, so much less free time than we used to. Emulators like Virtual 2, I really love developing in that just because it's got that whole debug interface where you can, yeah, stop and step through code and look at memory and uh, and it's got the uh, the little tricks you can do to make it reboot instantly and not have to wait for the floppy disk to reload Protoss every time and things like that because uh, you know, like for example, I've recently been developing some uh, some interrupt uh, code, and you know, every time anything goes wrong, you have to reboot because every tiny little mistake brings the machine down in a horrible state, and there's nothing you can do to recover. So you just you spend a lot of time rebooting, and uh, so if I had to be then loading Protoss and opening Merlin and loading up my source code and then trying to figure out what went wrong every single time. I mean, that's, you know... I'm just getting older just listening time. to it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the iteration time is so brutal. I can't even imagine, you know, doing that nowadays with, uh, with such little free time. So, yeah, compared to doing that on an emulator where you can just bang through the, your, your, your iterations, you know, dozens of them, you know, in an hour. So... Yep, it's, uh, it's about getting things done, I'm afraid, as much as the nostalgia is neat. It was good when it was all said and done that plug the keyboard back in properly, and and it all worked, you know. Uh, but as I say, I, I don't really regret using uh, using the emulator along the way. Yeah, and there is still something. There's a, a magical moment. I've recently been testing a software project that I've been developing on an emulator on my real hardware, and there is something magical about that. I mean, as long as you're developing it in the emulator, it, it just feels like desktop software. You know, it feels a bit like developing an iPhone app or something because everything is on your, your your MacBook Pro or whatever. And uh, so when you see that same code running for real on real hardware, that is still pretty pretty magical, actually. <laughs> Yeah, and this actually that that connects partly back to why I like doing the the LED animations either using microcontrollers or now my Apple, which is before this you can say oh I wrote a beautiful program, but in order to see the the beauty of the program, you know, it's, you're still sort of looking at the screen and by getting onto you know a spray of dozens or hundreds or thousands of colored LEDs, you've escaped the screen and you're kind mm-hmm. of out in the middle of the room or you're on somebody's hat. 
or, uh, <laughs> or what have you. And it, it is magic when you say, you know, you're no longer just staring at the screen. You're transcended that a little bit. Yeah, hardware is, is pretty great that way. It's, uh, it's a different kind of experience to see something you've built controlling, you know, external hardware versus just seeing something on the screen, for sure. I, I have to ask, what's this uh, interrupt project that you have? Well, you'll just have to come to Kansas Fest and see. That's, that's, that's where and now, I'm revealing it. So. And now she sets the hook. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've been tight-lipped about it all year on this podcast. So uh, you're just going to have to come to K-Fest and see. All right. Consider me officially lured. Now we'll see if we can, now we'll see if we can make all logistics work. <laughs> Excellent. I, when I was a kid, my, one of the things that my dad brought home uh, was um, an X10 kit. You know, oh, yeah. So I had a lot of oh, yeah. I had a lot of fun experimenting with you know the programming the lights and, and the various home accessories to to my mother's great annoyance, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, there's like you said, Quinn. There's definitely a, a kind of a, a next step feel to actually having things react in the real world to what you're doing on the Apple II as opposed to just seeing the, the pixels light up on the screen. Not that that's not exciting too. <laughs> yeah, it's funny uh, you mentioned that. I mean, there was X10 uh, stuff for the Apple II uh, back in the day and uh, you can still get it. It does come up on eBay occasionally and X10 did become sort of a de facto standard uh, and it's, so it still works today. You can still buy X10 stuff. So it would still be possible definitely to set up your Apple II to do your, your home automation now if you wanted to, uh, which is actually something I have considered. Uh, it's on the backlog of projects that I will never have time for, but uh, there are, of course, more modern systems now. There's things like Insteon and uh, Wemo and so on, more modern uh, home automation standards, but X10 does still work. Now I have to go into my basement and dig that up. <laughs> Do you have uh, one of the original X10 Apple II interfaces? Yeah, I still have the, the whole set. There's the, the interface <laughs> and then the various attachments for the yeah. accessories. Oh, so, very yeah, cool. I, I've got all that oh, you have stored to, away. You have to dig that up then. That's neat. You could uh, bring it to K-Fest and control the lamp in your room. <laughs> Just annoy my roommate. That's right. <laughs> I, I think that I, I had some of that back in the day. And I, I, I remember at one point plugging the Apple into one of the appliance modules and then writing a program to turn that module off. <laughs> turn itself off. That's, that's excellent. I couldn't get it to turn back on for some reason. But. <laughs> are, are you familiar with the, those things called uh, the most useless machines? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> for, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a little hobby project you can build. There's plans for them online and it's uh, it's a box with a switch on it and you flip the switch and a little lid on the box opens and some sort of robotic finger comes up and turns the switch off again <laughs> and uh so that's they call it the most useless machine because all it does is turn itself back off again <laughs> and uh, when done correctly it's actually the idea is that it there's no external power source so it really is turning itself off just using some sort of latent energy uh, that was still there as the switch went off so either using some sort of capacitor or some sort of mechanical energy or something like that so that's funny because you sort of made the most pos most complex possible uh, useless machine. <laughs> You're right. That's what this thing did was it reached out and turned itself off. <laughs> <laughs> there was a company called, I think it was called Thunderware, uh, and they made a, a, a Thunderware clock interface for the Apple II, but uh, they made a version called, I think it was the Thunderclock Plus that also had the X10 interface. So if you um, if you had that, because it had the clock, you could you could you know, program things would happen later on in the day, and I always wanted one of those that I could mess with my mom when I wasn't there. 
<laughs> I remember the Thunder Clock. I didn't know the company that made that was called Thunderware, which can I just say is a bit of an unfortunate name for <laughs> I'm going to hazard a guess they didn't focus test that one very much. I hope it is called Thunderware because that, that makes me laugh. <laughs> Somebody needs to resurrect that name. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can only imagine the, the corporate logos. <laughs> I hope they have a line of music composition software called the Tire Track. Uh, no. <laughs> Let's, uh, all right, we'll just wrangle that uh, right back in before we lose our family rating on iTunes. Well, I want to say thank you very much for uh, having me on to talk about the Fast LED 6502. And I said, I'm, I'm still really looking forward to getting the the first pictures from somebody else who's gotten it stood up and running. And anybody has any problems, I'm happy to help out. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for showing it to us. Like, yeah, this just hits the sweet spot for us. We love things that do something new and modern with uh, with the Apple IIs. So uh, we'll put out an official uh, call to our listeners right now. Listeners, uh, someone out there, go and try this and send pictures in to us, and we will uh, pass them on to Mark and uh, post them for everyone else to see. The gauntlet has been thrown down. <laughs> That's right. I have thrown it. It is, it is down. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, we got a lot of news to talk about, don't we, Mike and Mark? Yes, we also. do. My goodness. So we'll just roll right on into that. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. So I think the first item is mine, so I'm just going to dive right in. We've been talking quite a bit recently about Chris Torrance's book, Assembly Lines, and uh, it's, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a sort of a reprint slash edition of lost uh, articles, I guess, of all of uh, Roger Wagner's Assembly Lines articles. And it's a really wonderful read. I'm really enjoying it. And I think there's an Easter egg in it. And I might be crazy, but uh, someone else can maybe confirm this, there seems to be a, a flip book in the corner of the pages that is the Apple II cursor, you know, the square bracket and the blinking cursor prompt. If you uh, look down in the corner and you do flip the pages like a flip book, it makes the blinking Apple II cursor. Maybe I'm imagining that, but it sure seems to be there. Crap, now I'm looking around for my copy of it. <laughs> <laughs> Because I want to check that right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, so I, it's possible uh, that I'm making that up, but it sure seems like it to me. I don't think it's an accident. There is a you know uh, there's a cursor prompt uh, in the corner of every page, and some of the pages the cursor's not there, and some of them it is. So I think that's what it's supposed to be is a flipbook. So well done, Chris. I think that's the first mention I've seen of that. Yeah. All right. Breaking news. You heard it here first. <laughs> Open Apple, the podcast of record. ITWorld.com has an article, and I'm sure this is all over pretty much every tech blog, so I don't know if they're the original source for this or not, but the, the source code for the original Microsoft Basic for 6502 has been published, and you can go browse that right now. Microsoft's gig, I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to the show already knows this, but for the one of two of you that might not, before they were, you know, the, the Windows company and the Office company, they made... Uh, operating systems, they licensed BASIC and I think Xenix and a couple of other uh, programs to pretty much every hardware maker out there, including Apple. So if you pop the cover off your Apple II, you will see a copyright Microsoft 1977 notice on the PCB itself. But uh, the source code's out there now, uh, and um, you can take a look. I don't know if this was sanctioned or not, but uh, at this point, I don't think it really matters. Yeah, it's not entirely clear where this came from, uh, and it's kind of neat as a historical artifact just because, you know, Bill Gates actually wrote it. 
But uh, of course, to Apple II users, it's kind of old news. You know, the source code for AppleSoft Basic, which is basically this, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, has been around for a long time. And in fact, we'll talk about that later in the show. But the uh, commonly available AppleSoft Basic source code uh, listings are quite a bit better than this one. You know, they're better annotated and better referenced. So this is kind of a neat uh, piece of history, but uh, certainly not very uh, useful or exciting to Apple II users. Uh, to those of us who are developing uh, with AppleSoft basic internals, it's uh, kind of old hat. You're saying that, that Bill didn't adequately comment his code? I, You know what? Uh, I am not going to say anything to disparage Mr. Gates. Um <laughs> Because he listens, you know that. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he listens to the show, and he has enough money to do anything he wants. So he <laughs> there, it, there is therefore right about everything and awesome. All right, what do we have next here? Ah, filming on the Jobs movie. Well, this is this is old news by now. I think this kind of broke the end of January that uh, they had started filming on the the second Jobs movie. This was the project that was written by Aaron Sorkin and started at Sony and moved over to Universal Pictures. And when it moved over to Universal, um, Waz did not move with the project, so he was no longer consulting. But I think they probably got everything they needed out of him by then anyway. And the articles, I guess they started at the garage, uh, the the famous or infamous garage, uh, which actually was sort of uh, debunked recently and said, yeah, the garage really wasn't that important to us. So I imagine that was probably, well, you know, we've got the script written already and and this is what we're filming. So um, more recently, they were filming over at uh, De Anza College at the Flint Center where the the original Macintosh was revealed in 1984. And there was a casting call, actually, for extras. And I guess thousands of people showed up for this thing. And there was a there's a tongue in cheek article over on CNET that said I almost met a, one of the extras on the Jobs movie, so <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Um, Cult of Mac has an article that's kind of the, the meet the cast. So Jobs uh, is going to be played by Michael Fassbender, and at least the pictures that I've seen, there's not a lot of physical resemblance there, but everything I've seen Fassbender do has been really great. So I imagine that that probably won't be a problem. Kate Winslet has been cast as Joanna Hoffman. Uh, Cult of Mac describes her as the former Apple PR queen. And obviously, uh, we talked about Seth Rogen being Waz and kind of questioned that, you know, what Waz wasn't always the, the, the sort of <laughs> rotund, jolly guy that he is now and whether Rogen would make a good choice for that. But the, the screen, the publicity shots that I've seen so far, he actually kind of, he, he slimmed back down uh, some like he did for, what was it, Green Hornet? Um, so he looks pretty good. Uh, Jeff Daniels is playing John Scully, and there's a real physical resemblance there. Yeah, that's a good casting, that one. Yeah. Someone named Catherine Waterston is playing Chrisanne. I don't know what she's been in. Oh, she had a breakout role in the Oscar-nominated film Inherent Vice. Uh, Michael Stolberg is playing Andy Hertzfeld. And let's see, there are three different actresses that will be playing the young Lisa Jobs at various points in her life. They are Perla Hanny Jardine, uh, Ripley Sobo, and Mackenzie Moss. I don't know any of them. A very Emma Stone looking Sarah Snook will be playing Apple, the legendary Apple PR woman Andy Cunningham. She did all the PR for the Macintosh. And Adam Shapiro will be playing Avi, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, Tavanian, who worked with Jobs at Next because. Because it's a bio of Jobs, it also talks about his years away from Apple. So it should be interesting to see. And I think it's they now have a release date of like September or October of this year. Yeah, and since they've uh, 
cast Seth Rogen as sort of the uh, the later uh, version of Waz, and uh, they bothered to cast Jobs' daughter. I think that says a lot about the sort of time period that they intend to cover. This is clearly more of the later portion of Jobs' career. It's probably going to be a lot of iPod and iPhone stuff and not so much uh, Apple II stuff, but that's uh, a bit unfortunate, I think. Well, for, from our perspective. Yeah. Well, in, I mean, we're biased, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to circle back, actually, a little bit. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, Mark, what's the uh, what's the interface for uh, for FastLED? We were talking about, uh, you know, the Microsoft Basic source code. Does uh, does is there an AppleSoft Basic interface to to your library, or have there been thoughts of uh, writing one? Thoughts of writing one? Yes, that does not exist yet. Right now, it's it's an assembly interface. It comes with uh, with one demonstration that does a, a sort of swirling rainbow around the the LEDs. But clearly, the right thing to do, part one is would be to write a sort of ampersand interface, so you could call it from AppleSoft Basic. But the other thought I've had is, and if I felt like sinking some money into this, to actually make a 40 pixel by 40 pixel wall size array of these LEDs and write a routine that screen scrapes the low-res screen and uh. mirrors it onto the wall of LEDs so you could play Lemonade Stand. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> That that would be so, an amazing KFest project, I think, is what that would be. You know, that would, that would be fun. And then what I do is just you know make it some way that I can just roll it up and put it in a tube and take it with me. <laughs> yeah, uh, the dream of a flexible display on the Apple II. <laughs> right, right. Right now, the uh, the interface is uh, is assembly. It, it's essentially it's a library intended to be linked into other people's assembly code, which is in, in a lot of ways what we did with the sixty five hundred two version mirrors the way it works as an Arduino library, which is you're writing your code and this is just a library used to get it done. Right. But on the Apple, it's a little bit different and we do have the graphics screen and we can play with that. So there there may yet be future development here. (laughs) Very cool. I love the idea of, yeah, using the low-res screen as an interface. That's fantastic. Uh, I could also uh, send you some code for uh, uh, parsing the uh, ampersand uh, command line type stuff. Um, That's actually quite easy to do. It's a little bit tedious to set it up the first time, but uh, I could uh, send you some code if you wanted to do that. I have to admit I've, I've forgotten how to do that. Back in, I guess, 1981, I, I wrote some code that, that did that. I sent it to Bob Sanders Cedarloff, who had the uh, Apple Assembly Lines newsletter. He published some of that code then. I, there's an Apple software team called GetVar and some other things in there, but it's all it's all hazy. I'd love I'd love it. <laughs> the ampersand part is easy enough. Yeah, you know, it's just a vector. But then, yeah, the messy part is having to parse all of the AppleSoft tokens and so on to figure out what the yeah. uh, user wants to do. But uh, yeah, there's some good code out there. Uh, I would also recommend looking at uh, Michael Mahon's uh, uh, Net. He's got a really nice ampersand interface for that. And I looked at his code mm. quite a bit when I was writing mine. He's got quite a, an elegant implementation of that. I'll take a look at that. One of the things that's funny is, you know, sort of the interface layer here is these LEDs are 24-bit color. Each LED can display 16 million different colors. And there's not a pixel anywhere in this Apple II that has anything like that number of colors. <laughs> nope, the Apple II would dream of such fidelity. The, t- the 2GS can't even do that. Yeah, exactly. So there's clearly some uh, impedance mismatch there that has to be dealt with in code. But... There's a lot. There's a lot to do. So I, I, I feel like there's a, a lot of opportunity, and I'd love to do a large low res screen. We'll, we'll see how time and resources work out on that. 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, I mentioned uh, not a net. Speaking of networking Apple twos, uh, David Schmenk has been quite busy, as he often is. He's built what appears to be uh, an Apple II web server. Now, there isn't a lot of information about this, unfortunately. His website has some tantalizing photos and not a lot of other information. So uh, we can tell from this that it's probably running off Plasma, which is his own language that he's written for the Apple II. And it's, uh, of course, famously being used as the game uh, scripting language in Lawless Legends. It's a very cool thing. And he appears to be uh, serving uh, a website to his iPad from the Apple II. And this is all deduced from a screenshot. (laughs) So has anyone else heard any more information about this? Uh, So I I took a look at that uh, website, and he's using an interface module called the WizNet 5100 to do the the heavy network lifting there. Okay. So I I feel like, uh, again, he's kind of borrowing from the Arduino world, the (laughs) microcontroller world, and it... It's exciting. It, again, makes me think that there's a lot that could be done hooking up sort of contemporary microcontroller things to the Apple II. I recently saw a, a new uh, Wi-Fi module for embedded systems called an ESP8266, which is a little thing. It's about $5, and on one side of it has a basically a serial interface, mm-hmm. and on the other side of it uh, can join your Wi-Fi network and can do all kinds of internet comings and goings and people are trying to do very interesting things with it especially because it's so low cost oh neat yeah i've seen that that thing has been all the uh, the hacking blogs and so on have been uh, all a twitter so to speak about that thing oh and uh <laughs> yeah it was for because for a long time yeah, there was no inexpensive way to get just you know tick to get a wi-fi stack and just add it to something like an arduino or, or a, a microcontroller and uh, yeah, now there's this thing that came out of China, and for a while nobody knew how to use it. They just knew it was a Wi-Fi stack on a chip, uh, with no drivers or anything. And then people, you know, built up tools for it, and so now suddenly it's this panacea. You know, it's you can add Wi-Fi to anything for five dollars. So uh, it's only a matter of time till someone does it on an Apple II if they haven't already. Uh, and the thing is so small that you you could actually mount that on a 16-pin dip header and just drop it into the game port. So there, <laughs> That's there's, true. There's, <laughs> so there's a potential here for sort of a you know the no slot clock uh, except the Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> the no slot Wi-Fi, I love it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so you're going to do that for KFest too, right? <laughs> we could sell dozens. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, maybe maybe two dozen. I, you know. That's that's dozens. If plural. you advertise it right, yeah, you might get up to thirty. Yeah, if you bring them all to KFest, <laughs> you would probably sell out. So I, I have to say, this is the kind of project where, you know, it's like the LED one, which is, honestly, if even one person <laughs> does it and and gets a kick out of it, then it's worth it. For sure. Yeah, I mean, with the Apple II, any kind of project that you do, you know, we're way, way into the territory of you better love doing it and not count on anyone else ever <laughs> using it for anything because uh yeah again unless you bring it to kfest where all of the remaining apple II users will be uh we certainly can't <laughs> count on uh, making anything out of it all right well mike uh looks like cider press is in the news again why don't you talk to us about that yeah so a couple of months ago we talked about how uh after i think the previous version 3.01 is about six years old now. Um, they were there was finally some uh, movement to to bring it to 
more modern Windows interface because there were a few little bugs and things like that. And beta version was out for people uh, to play with, and that has now gone final. And there's there's there are some significant changes there uh, uh, in the UI and usability. There's some bug fixes and some internal stuff. This is all going to be. Uh, we'll, we'll have the specifics in the show notes here. The uh, the new Lib two, which is the command line interface that sort of goes along with uh, CiderPress has also been updated to version 3.0, and that was just kind of more code refresh. I don't know that there's any new features or anything like that. If you're uh, a Mac type and you don't like Windows, this still works just fine under Wineskin if you're willing to do a little uh, configuration in there. Uh, you can get that running under, under Mac as well, which is kind of a neat thing because I think CiderPress, even 10 or 12 years later, is still the, the most useful Apple II disk image manipulation tool out there? Yeah, it really is. I was looking into this a little bit. I keep meaning to set up CiderPress. St- I'm still using Apple Commander, the uh, Java-based command line tool for manipulating disk images. But CiderPress, I didn't even honestly know that it, some of the stuff it does, I mean, it'll read AppleWorks GS files and I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff that, yeah, makes it really quite a remarkable tool. So that's available now. Um, and we'll, like I said, have the link in the show notes to download that. Mark, have you delved into making disk images yet or ripping disks? So there's a there's a pile of suspicious looking floppies in my basement, which I have not yet jumped into. The The build process that I did for the for the LED project did involve using uh, Apple Commander to put the newly uh, newly assembled binaries onto a disk image and then pushing that over the wire or making it available over the wire um, using ADT Pro. But yeah, uh, putting put, putting the files directly onto the disk image saved just a ton of time. Uh, Apple Commander, uh, excuse me, Apple Commander's multi-platform. Uh, CiderPress is just Windows, right? Yeah, it uh, like Mike says, it'll run under Wine or uh, Parallels or something like that as well. If someone is so inclined, <laughs> we're stacking up the emulators. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, uh, John Romero uh, has made his presence known in the Apple II Facebook group. Always nice to see him in there. He's such a luminary for our community. And uh, he posted quite a remarkable story about Bob Bishop's Apple II stuff. So, of course, Bob Bishop passed away recently. We had a little bit of a tribute to him here on Open Apple. And he left behind quite an amazing collection. And uh, John Romero and his wife managed to rescue it. And they posted some awesome photos uh, on Facebook. Did you guys look at these? I did, yeah. Yeah, the one that's really, I guess, caught everybody's eye was the not a Bell & Howell black Apple II+. Plus. <laughs> Apparently, it was some sort of prototype for the Bell & Howell. We're not sure, but it's a neat thing. It's a black Apple II+, Plus that does not say Bell & Howell on it. And I believe it did not have the, uh, what do they call that thing on the back, the caddy or the... The little backpack. Yeah, the backpack did not have that on it. And it had some uh, hand wiring inside. It had uh, a terminal strip inside it with a bunch of uh, hand wires uh, in there. So, yeah, appears to have been some sort of prototype possibly for that Bell & Howell unit. Neat stuff. Luckily, uh, it was rescued. They, uh, they called in the right folks who knew what to do and knew what they were looking at. So one of Bob's friends, uh, close friends uh, up in Paradise, California, where Bob lived, I guess was aware that the family was, you know, the family had asked him to come by because they were going to clean out his place before they sold it and asked him to deal with the uh, computer stuff because they didn't know what to do with it. And uh, he immediately called John. John got his wife and a bunch of friends and they all went up there and, and uh, rescued all of that. So it's, it's not like they just kind of, well, we'll just wait until they, they throw everything in the dumpster and leave and then we'll grab it. It wasn't anything <laughs> like that. Uh, well, because there were some people like wondering about, like, mm. did you just like steal the stuff? So <laughs> no, that did not happen. 
Uh, I know John was talking about donating kind of a large portion of it, maybe to the Computer History Museum or another place where where other uh, enthusiasts could could see and enjoy it. Um, of course, the really cool stuff that'll be in his collection. Darn it! <laughs> but uh, but that's okay. It's it's really awesome that that he went up there and and did that because Bob does have uh, quite a legacy with the uh, early days of Apple. For sure, and it's it's a great outcome to to see you know the stuff go into the hands of people that will appreciate it, as opposed to you know some auction house or even worse, just some cleaning service that comes in you know when the house is empty or whatever and just throws the stuff away. That's sort of everyone's worst nightmare: some you know gem hiding in someone's house somewhere, and then the person who who owns it passes on, and uh, nobody who knows how amazing it is is there to uh, pick it up. So well, I, I know that in fact uh, recently Michael Mahone who. Uh, uh, we mentioned earlier, he, he kind of realized that he probably, um, there, there were more things uh, in his collection sitting there that would never get done than he would ever have time to get to. And he contacted uh, Sean Fahey and he and I think Tony Diaz and some other people uh, went up there. And a lot of that actually ended up at the Kansas Fest giveaway last year. And I think there's going to be more this year. So uh, it does bring up an interesting point. I, I know that the guys on the RCR stole our idea for talking about this before we talked about it. Jerks. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it sort of does bring up, you know, the, the thought that, well, as, as Apple collectors get older, what, what happens when they, when they shuffle off this mortal coil and their collection is sitting there and their wife doesn't know what that stuff is? I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of it just gets thrown away and, and uh, lost to the, to the mists of time, so to speak, uh, which is really unfortunate. And, um, you know, I, kind of makes me wonder i look around my loft up here and i've got all kinds of stuff and I, I know my wife knows that it's important to me and to my friends but like if she had to go through this i don't know that she would know what to do with it so it gets me thinking about like i should i don't know if it's i should update like a section of my will to talk about like just call <laughs> these people and they'll come take away all the apple II stuff or, or what the deal is yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing because especially since like a lot of collectibles, you have to be an expert to know what the really valuable stuff is compared to the junk. You know, if we're being honest, most Apple II stuff just isn't worth anything. You know, yet another Platinum IIe is just really not worth anything. But that one particular Apple II that has the Second Sight VGA card in it is worth quite a bit, you know, or that... Uh, sealed Infocom copy of something or whatever, you know, there's, or the original Calabeth in a baggie, there's certain items that are just going to be worth a lot of money that someone who isn't as deep in the community as we are would know about. And uh, that's the stuff that we worry about getting lost, I think. Uh, and in fact, um, this past, well, it's been a year and a half, two years now, I was contacted by a woman whose, whose collector hobbyist husband had died and she had a basement full of stuff. And uh, she contacted me because, or contacted the show actually, and um, because she didn't know what to do with it, and so I, I was able to kind of help her catalog some of that stuff. And there was she had somebody locally that was uh, willing to go through it with her, but um, that can be like a monumental job for somebody who doesn't know what it is and might be dealing with the grief of having lost somebody, but wants it out of their house. You know what do you do? I could see where somebody would just say, screw it. I'm going to just call the junk guys, come take this away. So I don't have to look at it again. For sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of saving history, let's uh, talk about everyone's favorite archivist, Jason Scott. Yeah. So this is an interesting one. I I'm sure that he tweeted about this or Facebooked or something a while back, but I didn't notice it. Over on Jason's uh, Flickr page, he has a collection of photos from various early computer shows like the West Coast Computer Fair number eight um, and a few others. And that, that one took place in 83 
and I think Jason is maybe my age, so like early 40s, maybe a little bit older, uh, probably a little bit young to have taken these pictures himself. But uh, nonetheless, there is a wide, a vast collection of photos and, and they're pictures of, of booths of like Bertabun software and, and Central Point software, companies that, that we, we know and love. And you can easily find pictures of Waz and Jobs with the Apple One at PC76 or, or the Apple II at the West Coast Computer Fair. But beyond that, you know, if you, if you really want to kind of just get a feel of what one of these shows was like and you're not an Apple-centric person, something like this collection really gives you a feel of, of what it was like to, to be there at the time. For sure. I absolutely adore these photos. As part of my career, I've spent a lot of time at E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, and it's, you know, the modern version of this. And you see there's lots of big flashy booths with all the latest, you know, Xbox and PlayStation games and so on. And it's amazing to see Apple II stuff in that same context, you know, to see the, the broader bunt booth with all of the Apple II games laid out in the same trade show kind of format. And it's just fantastic. I had never would have, you know, been able to go to such uh, places at the time. So it's fantastic to see what they actually looked like. So speaking of uh, archiving things, uh, Mark, you said you've got a bunch of floppy disks of unknown or dubious origin <laughs> lying around. Uh, do you have plans to archive that stuff or uh, image it? Uh, you know, Jason Scott talks a lot about how important it is to capture that stuff, especially the, you know, if you have programming projects or old school floppy disks, things like that, because, you know, we have all the copies of Loadrunner that the world needs. But if you've got personal stuff, that's really where the some of the real history is. So it would be interesting for me to go back and because I I know that in that pile is the first floppies that I owned, uh, so probably 1980. I'm sure they're perfectly good. <laughs> you know, the, the first floppies that I owned and look back at what Mark Kriegsman was programming like back then. You know, I've written a lot of code subsequent. And it'd be interesting just to track a personal trajectory through it all. Um, m most of the disks that I have down there are are my own code, uh, are not uh, commercial software, except for, I think, my development tools. So the SC Macro Assembler was my, my tool chain of choice, and I've got a couple different versions of that. That's well archived online already, though. So it really would be a, a, a personal project for me. That would be excellent. Not sure what I have in there that would be worth sharing with the world, but certainly interesting to take a look at. Well, you know, like like I was saying, Jason Scott talks about this a lot, that uh, it's all valuable. It's all worth saving, even if it seems weirdly, oddly personal uh, to us now in 100 years or something, people are going to look back and that's the stuff that's actually going to matter because that's the stuff that tells the stories. You know, when archaeologists are digging up pieces of clay pots, what's interesting is when you find those little bits of something really personal, uh, someone's initials carved on the pot or something that anchors that thing in time and space and tells a story of how someone used the thing, how someone lived with the thing, uh, as opposed to finding a store that had a bunch of pots for sale in it. That's not very interesting. It doesn't tell a story. And uh, so, yeah, I think we'll find in a lot, uh, in far into the future, this everybody's junior high school programming projects are going to be actually where a lot of the uh, value is. Hmm. Well, it's certainly on my, as you said, the, the list of, uh, of projects that I won't get to right now, but uh, that could that could change. But I I'd be curious to go and you know dig up code that I wrote when I was about the same age that my daughter is now, and she's doing Scratch in school and things mm, like this. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to see that there's actually a lot that's the same there. I think. Yeah, for sure. 
Cool. Well, speaking of junior high programming projects, uh, Calabeth is in the news again. <laughs> Everybody's favorite proto CRPG. Uh, Touch Arcade is a popular iPhone game review and discussion site. And they do this thing where every so often they dig up an iPhone game from the archives and sort of re-examine it. And one of the earlier uh, iPhone RPG games was a port of a Calabeth from the Apple II. And uh, so this is a bit meta because it's uh, a retrospective on a port of a very old game to a modern platform that isn't so modern anymore. This is one of the sort of early iPhone games when the iPhone SDK first became available. Uh, it's worth talking about just because, well, of course, it's Calabeth, but it's also neat because of the way it's been implemented, I think, is worth uh, looking at. We'll, of course, have a link in the show notes. The you know interfaces to these old games are often difficult to replicate when porting them to modern devices because, of course, we don't have the same keyboards and the same joysticks and so on. And so the games often play weird in an emulator. I think we've all had the experience of downloading a, a port of something uh, to, to their iPhone or whatever, and you try to play it with some sort of weird touchscreen controls, and it just, just doesn't feel right. So what they've done here is they've replaced the keyboard of the Apple II with sort of uh, things that look like keys. They're buttons, and they look like Apple II keys, but they have specific commands on them. So instead of having an A and a C key on the keyboard for attack and climb, there's actually just keys labeled attack and climb. So they've kind of distilled the keyboard of the Apple II down to whatever would be the minimum required to play a Calabeth. And they're context sensitive, which is especially clever. So as you move through the dungeon, the available keys at the bottom change, and that allows the keys themselves to be physically large on the screen so that you don't have to touch tiny keyboard keys, which is of course the other problem. Uh, one of my favorite uh, things to play with on the iPhone is the C64 emulator. It's got lots of great C64 games on it, but it has this tiny keyboard that you kind of have to deal with because it shows the entire C64 keyboard on the screen. So this is a, a great solution. So thought I would mention it since it came across my RSS on Touch Arcade. All right, uh, Mike, what's next on the list here? Well, actually, it looks like one of your entries, this uh, retro stack overflow. What is that? Yeah, this is a cool thing that I hope becomes a real thing as opposed to a proposed thing. So there's been a thread going around on some of the forums and it showed up on the Facebook page. Someone has is created an initiative to try and set up kind of a retro stack overflow. So anyone who's a software engineer working in the cubicle world today knows Stack Overflow, of course, and hobbyists as well. If you have any sort of coding question or problem with a piece of development software or anything like that, if you Google the problem, you're almost certainly going to end up on Stack Overflow where there's uh, other people with discussing the problem and uh, there's sample code and all sorts of things. It's a great resource. Uh, what's, I think, you really unique about it is that the structure of it, it's part of the sort of Stack Exchange family of uh, discussion and repository websites where questions are kind of uh, codified. So there's only one copy of each of every possible question that can ever be asked. So you don't have this problem of where you have on forums where every six months someone asks the same question again and, you know, uh, there's no sort of organization to the uh, to the information. So Stack Overflow has this system where questions are are not allowed to be duplicated. And so if you have a question, you will find the instance of it on the site and there will be a discussion under it with all of the known solutions to this problem. 
and people rank the solutions, they up and down vote them. So you're likely to get kind of the best answer. And if it's controversial, you'll get a good discussion. So it's really a fantastic uh, way to do things. So someone has is trying to set this up for retrocomputing programming. And the way Stack Overflow or the Stack Exchange family of sites works is if you want to create a new one, you have to create a sort of a dummy version of what it would look like with a whole bunch of sample questions. And you have to get a whole bunch of people to sign in and uh, vote, basically upvote the questions. So it's kind of like a petition. You have to get enough people to say, yes, this is something I want in order to uh, have it become a thing. So what I love about this is that we actually talked about this at KFest last year. We had kind of a a side group do a 2GS programming talk. And one of the things we talked about is how to centralize the information that's out there for programming the 2GS. There's a lot of it. It's a complex machine with a lot of kind of secret knowledge. And we wanted some kind of resource for gathering all this stuff together and sharing it and organizing it. And, you know, we tossed around ideas about maybe using CSA2 or maybe using a wiki or maybe using Wikipedia. So when this retro Stack Overflow idea came along, it was like a light switch. Of course, this is the perfect way to do this because Stack Overflow is designed for exactly this kind of uh, organization and conversation. So we'll have a link to this in the show notes. If anyone is anyone who's the least bit interested, even if you're not, honestly, please uh, go over there and upvote some stuff so that we can hopefully uh, make this happen because I think it would be a really terrific resource. So I've heard of this, um, the retro stack overflow thing before, I think, but I'm not a programmer, so I'm not sure what they're actually looking at there. Is this just, is this just an, uh, a place where people can share ideas or is it something else? Yeah, my impression is that the, what they're going for is something that would be usable by not just programmers, but just anybody into retro computing. So the way it works is, you know, people set up sample questions that they would want to ask and answer on the new stack overflow section. And so some of the sample questions were things like, uh, oh, I want to move some, you know, floppy disks to disk images on my Atari or how, you know, whatever. How do I do that? So it uh, looks like it's not just for programming. Okay. Um, And I could see where that would be an advantage over, say, something like Facebook, where, you know, stuff bubbles to the top as it's interesting and then quickly gets buried. But uh, how is this better than, like, I don't know, CompSys, Apple II as a news group? Yeah, it's uh, the whole Stack Exchange family of sites, including Stack Overflow. It's kind of a hard thing to explain, but uh, it really works well as a repository of knowledge because it's, uh, you know, the way that they categorize questions and uh, make sure that they're unique and so on, uh, and the way that things are archived and the way that the answers are rated. So it it sort of forms, it's more of like a long-term repository of knowledge rather than a discussion platform, if that makes sense. Hmm, Okay. I sort of of see it, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I'm pretty excited about it anyway. I hope it goes through. I I find the Stack Overflow and friends to essentially be like a, a living FAQ where, you know, people say, here's my question, and then experts will jump in and, and answer it. But then that becomes part of the knowledge base. That question often doesn't get asked again, or if somebody asks, they'll just be referred to the first entry. Yeah, that's actually a living FAQ is a really good uh, way to explain it. All right. Well, shall we move on, Mike? I think this next item is yours. 
It is, and I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about actually talking about it because that the book is this, the, the Home Computer Wars. It's Mike Tomchik who worked at, um, I think, Commodore and Atari back when those companies mattered and, and they were competing with Apple and the other home computers. It's been out of print forever, and, and the, the um, used copies on Amazon sell for like 80 or $100 or something ridiculous. And like that, the author has said that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a, a new edition of this, so don't pirate my book. And, but there's a PDF out there, um, and it's been a long time, I think, since he's actually uh, made that promise, and there's been no forward motion on it. So I'd say in the meantime... Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes, of course, but uh, there there is a PDF that you can you can grab, and and I highly suggest reading it because it's an excellent book. And if he ever comes out with uh, the new edition, then go and buy that. Cool, that might be a good read. Uh, next up, we have um, uh, fonts. MacWorld.com has a neat article on Apple's uh, retro fonts, is what he's calling them, and and he goes through a, a history of. You know, the, the Garamond and, and things like that. But he also actually goes back to the, the modern Tectura and, and the de- design decisions and, and how that sort of works into the overall appeal of the design of the, of the product. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun article. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I thought this was a really good read. Uh, I'm a bit of a, a type nerd. Uh, one of my favorite documentaries is uh, the one called Helvetica. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think people underestimate the importance of type and how it influences the way you perceive products and, and signage and so on. And yeah, that is definitely, it's one of those things that Apple has just always, from the very beginning, really gotten right. Uh, and uh, there's just something classy and high tech about the typefaces that they always choose. And they always, you know, they update them carefully with the times and so on to keep them, feel <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, to keep them uh, looking looking fresh and, and modern. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Apple's fonts. Yeah, and I think this goes way back to that. You know, there's the the well-known story of, of Jobs uh, going up to, um, to read college and, and taking the calligraphy classes and really learning uh, how important fonts are and spacing and size and, and choice, uh, the choice of the font that you use in the situation. It really comes through. And, and I like the, the articles written by Christopher Finn, P-H-I-N. And uh, uh, it's, it's a quick article, but it's informative and it's a good read. So uh, moving along, let's see. We, uh, we talk a lot about Halton Catchfire on the show. In fact, for a while there, we, <laughs> we practically do. had a Halton Catchfire segment. So for uh, if you, anyone who's been listening to our recent episodes, if you didn't have any idea what we're talking about because you didn't watch the show, well, now's your chance. Uh, the entire first season of Halt and Catch Fire is now available for watching online at, uh, well, legally uh, online at uh, amc.com's website. So we will definitely link to that in the show notes. And, you know, it's definitely worth watching. I think as we've said before, it's not uh, brilliant television or anything, but it's fun for uh, us 80s nerds uh, who want to geek out on the nostalgia and uh, pretty uh, non-threatening watch for that reason. Mark, have you been uh, watching Halt and Catch Fire at all? Uh, I I have not been been keeping up with that, but uh, certainly... It gets kicked around the office every now and then. Engineers of a certain age are, are quite taken with it. I think it might be right in my sweet spot. So now I'm going to go take a look. It got really surreal there at the end of the first season. Um, but there is going to be a second season. They, they have confirmed that. And uh, one they interviewed uh, one of the producers of the show said that they're aware that fans were kind of unhappy about the way things went. And they're going to try and get back to the basics. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. So actually, I was going to be my next question is if anyone knew if there was actually going to be a season two, because I haven't honestly seen anything about it. It kind of season one kind of ended quietly and then there wasn't much uh, about it. So it's interesting to see that it's coming back. I think uh, criticisms that we've had of it probably are still 
true that uh, seemed always felt like they tried a little too hard to, I don't know, ramp up the drama. There was a lot of kind of shock and awe kind of writing in it, trying to, <laughs> uh, I imagine there's a lot of pressure on television writers these days to be increasingly uh, edgy and uh, forward thinking with TV shows getting so graphic and uh, and edgy these days. There did seem to be a lot of that going on that uh, felt a little bit forced in, you know, the actual story and the setting kind of got lost in the uh, heavy-handed drama in a few places, I thought. All right. So with uh, this uh, this month's Halt and Catch Fire segment out of the way, let's move on to <laughs> more interesting hardware kinds of things. Uh, have either of you heard of this thing called the SD Disk 2? Yes, and in fact, I just got mine in the mail the other day. Did you really? So you've ordered one of these things. Well, I've ordered the the emulator. I have not ordered the item that we're about to talk about. <laughs> okay, cool. This, yeah, so this is a, uh, a, a solid state storage solution for Apple II, like uh, the SD Floppy 2 or the UniS Disk or the CFFA that all of us know and love. But it's one that I haven't really seen a lot of press for. So, uh, have you, had you, where did you hear about this thing? I, I mean, until I saw this article, I actually had never heard of this device. It doesn't have as many neat features as the the Unis Disk. Is that how it's pronounced? The the one that's made by Nishida Radio. Um, but I don't know if Nishida Radio is even selling those anymore. And these you can get on eBay right now. And uh, he announced that uh, um, recently uh, that there's he's now making a little LCD uh, for it. Um, it's a, a plug-in board that you can attach to, to the uh, internals, I guess, and, and it'll give you a kind of a readout of what disk image you're working with. And um, so, yeah, it uh, looks interesting. Um, so, yeah, so there's the SD Floppy 2, which is the Bulgarian fellow who sells them on eBay. And uh, they look like, yeah, they look they look kind of like, uh, well, they're, they're a small form factor and they're made in um, inside like an aluminum extrusion, which is very nice looking, actually. And then uh, Charles Mangan actually makes, as my understanding is, a th- he makes or is planning to make a 3D printed enclosure for it that makes it look like a disc too. But uh, straight out of the box, the Bulgarian one does not. So this thing that uh, we found this link for, this is something else. This is from Korea, and it's called the SD Disc 2. And it's a, another solution that I have never seen before, but it came across my feed because the creator of it has added an LCD screen to it. Again, going back to the SD Floppy 2, that, as you say, um, uh, the fellow who makes that is also making uh, a display for that, or he showed a display for that on uh, Facebook group that was similar to those old mods you could do to disk 2 drives that would show which track they're accessing. Uh, I forget what that thing was called, the tracker or something like the that. track star. Tra- yeah, there you go. So he had done that to his device, which was kind of neat. Uh, so, But this is, again, something entirely different. So this is uh, something, like I say, something out of Korea. The website is mostly in Korean, so I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking at other than there's pictures of this thing that are pretty neat looking. And it is some other type of solid state device for Apple IIs. And hmm. uh, if anyone knows anything more about this, uh, by all means, let us know. I don't see a place to obviously order one, but it does look like a product. Uh, oh, here you go. He says at the bottom... Uh, fellow's name is Ian Kim, and he says uh, you can purchase it soon on eBay. So it may be for sale now, honestly. I don't know. He's got kind of a blog here where he's sort of laying out his development of it, I guess. Uh, this one looks quite nice, too. The little display is uh, really quite cool looking. Uh, so we'll definitely keep our eye on that. 
How about you, Mark? Do you have any experience with uh, solid-state devices on Apple IIs? Uh, I have not done a, the uh, solid-state on an Apple II. I had, for a while, a 20th anniversary Macintosh, um, which had a 2.5-inch IDE drive in there, uh, which was very slow, and replaced that with a, uh, with a flash card and was very happy with that. One of the things I found was, was amazing when I started looking at these solid-state devices for the Apple II, though, is... You know, the largest ProDOS volume you can put together is 32 megabytes. And that's, like, you can't get SD cards that small anymore. <laughs> you know, ev- everything is a one gig card or a half gig card. We've moved up several stages in the unit tree here. <laughs> yeah, it is It is pretty funny. The smallest SD card you can probably buy at, at Walgreens will store the entire catalog of Apple II software ever made without breaking a sweat. Right. It's like... I, I have uh, some Apple II discs on here. Oh, yes. Which ones? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a keychain. I have all the Apple II software. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I mean, of course, we would have killed for even a 32 megabyte uh, partition or hard drive back uh, back at the time. So, it's yeah, it is pretty amazing how we just throw away gigabytes of storage now as tchotchkes at trade shows. Yeah, I've got a, a five, five megabyte profile drive down in the basement. It was Apple's... The Apple branded drive that they mostly sold for the for the Apple three, I guess. Yep. But it was a five megabyte drive took twenty minutes to warm up, <laughs> literally. But it's you know much much faster than the floppy. But you know thousands of dollars in its day for those five megabytes. My very first hard drive was for my two GS actually, and it was a forty megabyte SCSI drive. And uh, it had a few quirks, like I had to power it up before the machine, and it, it took a few seconds to spin up and various other things. And it was enormous because it had this big case and power supply and so on. Yeah, it was just fantastic. It was just an amazing thing at the time. It, of course, when I first got it, it was just so much space. I thought I would never fill it. And uh, before too long, like all hard drives even today, uh, it's never big enough. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I did definitely uh, enjoy the heck out of that thing. It made the 2GS into almost a you know a modern machine. I ran the uh, kind of the combination. There's this combination environment you can build with the GNU uh, sort of Unix-like uh, system and uh, the Orca tools, Orca C and Orca M and Orca Shell. You can kind of put together this Unix-like system that boots into that instead of messing around with GSOS, which is very slow. Yeah, that's primarily how I used my 2GS for many years. So, uh, but speaking of uh, solid-state storage, uh, my personal favorite in this space is the, I'm pronouncing it Uni-S-Disc, just because I I think it's supposed to be, because it was originally the S-Disc, because it was SD, because it's SD card, and then, but then it also acts like a Unidisc, because it, it emulates smart port, so... Yeah, I'm I'm sticking with Unis Disk anyway. <laughs> yeah, Unis Disk does have a certain ring to it. I think I've gone back and forth. Honestly, I'm sure people have heard me say Unis Disk on this show, but uh, this week I'm saying Uni S Disk. So <laughs> I uh, recently got my own Uni S Disk up and running on my 2C Plus. In fact, I'll be talking a little bit more about that later in the show in the tech segment. But uh, the reason I want to mention it here is because there is a firmware update for it. So any users out there who have one, you should go on to Nishida Radio's site, and we will have a link to that, of course, where you can update your firmware. The great thing about this device is it's super easy to do. You just download this file from his site, and you put it on the SD card, and you put it in the machine, and you hold down a button while you turn it on, and it just updates its own firmware. So it's super easy. Oh, and the other great thing about this uh, firmware update is it includes source code. So if anyone has, you know, dreams of writing their own solid state storage type device for the Apple II, 
he's giving away his source code for how he does it, which is really quite wonderful, especially the SmartPort support. Uh, SmartPort is not the easiest thing in the world to emulate, and I think that's the reason that nobody else is doing it. Uh, well, I suppose I don't know exactly how the CFFA works. Maybe it does that. But most of the other solid-state options anyway only do Disk 2 support because it's quite a bit easier to do. So, uh, you know, if anyone else out there who has one of these solutions of their own that they're developing, you should grab his source code and see how he does the smart port because it's very cool. I think the, uh, I think the CFFA is kind of the premier one, the, the, the card that everybody wants. The, the, the runs always sell out immediately. But um, like you said, you know, this can, the, this, the Unis disk can be made to uh, work with a 2C, whereas the CFFA card takes up its own slot. So that's automatically the 2C's out. Yes, us 2C users uh, have uh, longingly looked at the CFFA for many years. You know, I've actually thought about uh, <laughs> trying to graft one internally into the 2C uh, because there is an expansion bus of sorts in there. It was, you know, originally intended for the memory expansion. And on the 2C+, Plus, there's an auxiliary connector next to the memory expansion port because the memory expansion port is not a full Apple II slot. But see, uh, the 2C Plus has this auxiliary connector right next to it that they added that includes a bunch of the signals that are missing from that original port that are included in a normal Apple II slot. So oh, that's guess, interesting. What I'm wondering is it? Yeah, it might actually be possible to. I don't. I haven't actually gone in there and looked and seeing to see if all the signals are necessary that the CFFA needs if they're all there. But if they are, it should theoretically be possible to graft a CFFA internally into a 2C Plus. That is. Now, of course, whether it would physically fit is an entirely separate question. I suspect it wouldn't. It's awfully tight in there. And the CFFA is a pretty beefy card. One of these days, I might just give that a try. It would be obviously some surgery to adapt the connectors and so on. But it would be very cool to see if it's at least possible. Did you hear that, folks? Quinn will be selling the CFFA card adapted to see at Kansas Fest this year. <laughs> yeah, and the only catch is that you have to take the top off your 2C and uh, it sticks up uh, out of the case. <laughs> so now what we're waiting for is uh, the, the same way people made uh, like MP3 players in the shape and form factor of a cassette that you could actually pop into a cassette player. Now we need the SD card drive that's in the form factor of a three and a half inch floppy that you can just pop into that 2C plus slot. Well, it's funny you should mention that. Actually, there was such a device uh, for a while. And now that I've said it, of course, I'm going to have to try and find the link. So I've set myself up for some Googling. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when I was originally looking into the solid state options, that was one of the things I wondered is, hey, has anyone done that? Because of course, we all remember when CD players first came along, there were these wacky adapters you could get that were like a dummy cassette that had a sort of a playhead inside it that was connected to a phono plug that you could stick uh, into your car stereo and thus drive your CD player through your car stereo's cassette player. They were terrible, of course, but it was a way to do it uh, if you had no other way. And I often wondered, is there something similar for SD cards? And in fact, there was. There was a three and a half inch floppy disk that had an SD card, like a dummy disk that had three and a half inch, or had an SD card slot on the outside of it. And it was probably PC only. I don't imagine why anyone would make something like that for any market other than that. It was. I found it on a website, and it was no longer for sale, but, well, there, it was a for sale storefront type of thing, but the it was out of stock, and it didn't appear as though 
there was ever going to be stock again. It was one of those sites where you could tell there was a sort of dust on it. But uh, it was, yeah, a neat looking device. I don't know how exactly uh, it worked, presumably the same way. I guess there was some sort of fake kind of playhead that would make the floppy drive. I think it was reading uh, from a floppy disk. But uh, yeah, I'll try and dig up um, this, the link for that because it it's an interesting photo. It looks just like you would think. It's, it looks like a three and a half inch floppy disk with a SD card slot in the edge of it. Uh, so I don't know whatever happened to that thing or if it would have ever worked on an Apple II, but it would be neat to track one down and try it. So uh, speaking of Apple IIcs and our uh, lack of SD storage options, I understand that uh, John Carmack still has a IIc, Mike. I don't know if this was his first Apple II or not. Carmack and, and um, John Romero, I think, both got their Apple II programming start really uh, their careers kind of took off when they got hired at uh, uh, SoftDisk, and, and they worked there for a while. And I know that John at least still has his Apple IIc, and his kids have reached that age where um, they're becoming cognizant of the world around them, and they're becoming interested. And, and so he's sat at least one of them down, I think both of them, um, at his Apple IIc, and is showing them how to program in AppleSoft Basic. Yeah, he's got a funny quote there, something about, teaching your kids, I guess it was a tweet, uh, teaching your kids to program on an Apple II is like ninja training them in the forest or something. I don't know. It was sort of a, <laughs> a pithy kind of nerd sound quote, but uh, uh, I thought it was... Kung fu training in the primitive wilderness. There you go. Uh, which I thought was <laughs> no. a little bit overstating it. I mean, it. you know, honestly, I kind of feel like it's the opposite. I think that these 80s computers were more approachable from a programming standpoint than modern computers are. You know, you could literally every single one of them, you could turn it on and it would put you at a prompt where you could type 10 print hello 20 go to 10. And, <laughs> you know, you could be doing that in seconds. And every modern computer, of course, there's just gigabytes of code that have to load uh, before you can even attempt to write any kind of code. And of course, there's all manner of crazy documentation and so on required. You have to pick from various kid specifically designed kid-friendly languages like Scratch or, you know, the Lego language or various other things. So it's, you know, you have to know where to go and you have to download and install things. And it's this whole big process to try and get your kids programming on a modern computer. But uh, an Apple II, it's hard not to program it because you turn it on and it just <laughs> presents you with an AppleSoft prompt, which is the easiest form of programming, I think, that has ever existed. Uh, Cult of Mac ran, ran a little article on it, and in fact, it says he says that uh, uh, this was not his original Apple II uh, equipment. His, uh, my wife got me a bunch of retro hardware for Christmas a few years ago, so... And that's what this Apple IIc was. Uh, he got started uh, on basic on an Apple II at school and then later bought himself a 2GS. Nice to know he was a 2GS person like myself. Yeah, there's a few of you out there, I guess. <laughs> We've heard from... Uh... 16-bit weirdos. <laughs> yes. We've heard, some, heard from some <laughs> listeners that uh, there isn't enough 2GS love on the show. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to personally <laughs> rectify that because I got lots of 2GS love in my heart. I just got to get into No, I will fight. I will fight tooth and nail or something. Yeah, you won't be happy until this is an Apple 3 show. Well, that's true. <laughs> Actually, I have one of those. Are we going to have a seg going to have a segment discussing the the fill mode in the uh, in the graphics too. <laughs> so, uh, well, let's get back to 8-bit stuff and in fact, early on in the 8-bit, there was this wacky thing called uh, VisiCalc. Uh, have you heard of it, uh, Mike? I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those program number things that, you know, counts and adds and stuff. I'm an avid uh, podcast listener, obviously, since here we are making them. And uh, <laughs> one of my favorite podcasts is Planet Money, one of the suite of NPR podcasts, quite quite excellent. 
Uh, so, but imagine my surprise when it showed up in my feed with a screenshot of VisiCalc. So this is making the rounds in the retro community, but uh, I wanted to mention it here since it is an Apple II thing and we are the Apple II podcast of record. Uh, they did a uh, history of spreadsheets, you know, because they're a show about finance and spreadsheets are intimately linked with that. They um, talked all about spreadsheets and the origins thereof. So, of course, VisiCalc was the uh, the bulk of the show. So we'll link to that. It's definitely an entertaining uh, listen. One of the uh, most interesting things that I learned about it was that spreadsheets uh were I think they, they were more significant, I guess, than I realized, or a lot of us realized maybe who aren't accountants, that uh, it kind of eliminated a whole category of uh, accounting, like it basically eliminated bookkeeping as a, as a profession, more or less. So, you know, there used to be these armies of bookkeepers who, you know, when a business wanted to run an experiment, you know, what would happen if we changed our paper supplier from this company to that company, how would that affect, you know, our bottom line and our taxes and everything else? And, you know, these armies of bookkeepers would go off and spend an entire day or even three or four days running all these numbers and working all that out. And then would come back to you with the answer. So obviously the spreadsheet would do that in, you know, three or four seconds. And uh, that was quite a big deal at the time. So it made, it made that portion of the field of accounting so much more efficient that Basically, then all the people who just used to do bookkeeping sort of became more accountants, and it kind of elevated the whole profession in a sense uh, from uh, by eliminating all that busy work. Uh, it just sort of allowed everybody to focus more on the kind of the high level aspects of uh, of accounting and business management. So anyway, <laughs> that was all a little dry, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, <laughs> if, if you didn't think spreadsheets could be interesting, I would suggest you listen to this show. And VisiCalc in particular was kind of the thing, the program that helped the Apple II take off and, and salespeople saw this and, and for the first time realized that this wasn't just a hobbyist game machine and, and sales really kind of rose exponentially when, when VisiCalc went on sale. Uh, and if you're interested after listening to the podcast, uh, Dan Bricklin over at Bricklin.com has a whole history of his company Software Arts and, and their distributor uh, personal software, which later became VisiCorp and the program itself, VisiCalc. So uh, you can really, really dive deep uh, with that stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Let's move on to, we talked a little bit about the CFFA. And one of the other interesting exotic interface cards that is out there is the uh, Carte Blanche 2. And this is something we've talked about before when they reopened uh, orders for it. The Carte Blanche, uh, the original Carte Blanche was an FPGA development board, essentially, that you could stick in your Apple II. And the Carte Blanche 2 was announced a while back, and he started taking orders for that. And uh, the reservations are now closed for production run number one of that device. So that's actually encouraging news. I guess if he closed the production run, that means that a lot of people ordered them. So really excited to see what people can do with an FPGA in their Apple II. It's bad news if, if you were hoping to get on the list and you didn't, but it's definitely good news because there's uh, interest. I know when the first round of cards came out, I think there was some uh, misunderstanding about what the card was and what you could do with it. This is definitely a developer board. It'll sit in your Apple II nicely and won't really do much until you, you make it do whatever it is that you want to do. But you'll, you'll need to have some hardware skills and, um, and some time to, to play with that. Yeah, this device, it's its the kind of thing where if you're a hardware hacker, if, if you're not a hardware hacker, it, it makes utterly no sense whatsoever. If you are a hardware hacker, it's exactly what you always wanted, and it's amazing. So there's quite a gap there, I think. Um, how about you, Mark? Have you ever played with FPGAs? 
Uh, FPGA is uh, is coming up next on my horizon. My uh, my my partner in crime on the fast LED project uh, has started dipping his toes in there, and he's quite enthusiastic about it. So, um, you know, we're excited about the idea of purpose built hardware that can do color space transforms in a single clock cycle and things like that. Very cool. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. I've played a lot with microcontrollers and that kind of stuff. And FPGAs are kind of the next frontier for me as well. And uh, I uh, definitely keep intending to uh, dip my feet into that particular pool, although I did miss out on the carte blanche too, but uh, maybe next run. All right, so moving right along here. Uh, this is a nice little demo that came along from Dagan Brock, actually, for the 2GS. Uh, there's the missing 2GS love that we've been asked for. Uh, this is actually... <laughs> wow, don't don't sound so excited. Uh, I don't, you, you don't seem very sincere, Mike. I don't know. I am. I, I like the 2GS, I guess. <sighs> Go ahead and qualify it. I let you have your <laughs> woos segment, so you're going to let me talk about the 2GS. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. So this is a, a little demo that Dagan Brock uh, put together, who uh, I think he's doing more with the 2GS. Uh, him and, you know, Brutal Deluxe are probably doing more with the 2GS right now than anybody else in the community, which is awesome. I like to see that. And he did this actually before the holidays, uh, sort of a, he calls it a 2GS micro demo. And it's called Snow. And it's a very tasteful sort of uh, black and white image of a tree being snowed on and there's snow falling. And it's very nice, and I bring it up now just because it came across my YouTube feed again recently, and I realized I don't think we had talked about it, and it was really nice and deserves to be mentioned on the show. It uh, reminds me a lot of the main menu from the FTA Christmas demo. It had the word Xmas in big letters, and there was menu options above it for the various sections of the demo, and uh, there was snow falling, and the snow would kind of pile up on the letters. And uh, it was super, super well done. And of course, like I'm sure many of us did, I did in fact leave it running for hours once just to see if it would literally fill the screen with snow. Uh, and it does. So if you're ever really, really bored, fire up uh, an emulator or your real hardware and load up that, F that, load up that FTA Xmas demo and uh, just let it run on that main menu. It's, uh, it's pretty funny to watch it fill the whole screen with snow. It does take a while. It's very, it literally, it fills it up. Not, not every pixel sticks, each little snowflake. Some of them, about maybe half or a third of them actually stick. So you have to let it run for quite a long time to pile it up. But uh, yeah, it does do it. It's very neat. So what's this uh, Apple II display thing that yeah. I'm seeing on my spreadsheet? <laughs> well, a little while ago, I went to uh, Stanford to give a guest lecture to one of their electrical engineering classes and also their women in computer science group. And I was talking about Veronica, the homemade computer that I showed last year at Kansas Fest. And, uh, you know, I've been, as I'm sure most of our listeners probably know by now, I've been blogging about it and so on. And uh, the folks at Stanford saw that and wanted me to come and give a chat to their students about it. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, and what was especially neat was on the uh, third floor of the uh, ironically named Bill Gates Computer Science Building, uh, there is <laughs> a display case with a whole range of vintage Apple II hardware in it. And so that was quite a nice surprise to come around the corner and see that uh, just in one of their kind of common areas. And uh, so it's, uh, yeah, I was super happy to see it there and really glad they're recognizing the history there. The uh, sort of funny thing about it, though, now I took a picture of this, which I'll uh, share in the show notes. 
Uh, the funny thing about it is that they were really quite sad specimens of Apple II hardware. Uh, there was an Aww. Apple II, yeah, there was an Apple II C, and it was missing a key, and the, you know there was a oh, 2E, I think it was, and it was all dirty and f- like all <laughs> yellowed, and uh, there was pieces missing, and so and what what was funny is that they could go on eBay right now and buy far better <laughs> looking examples for twenty dollars. So it's a bit of a mystery why they have these really sad, broken old Apple IIs in their display case as this sort of uh, historical archive of hardware. It's kind of a theme in the building. They have these display cases everywhere. They have samples of historical hardware. And there's some really amazing stuff, you know, prototypes from the 60s and stuff. Uh, Lots of really rare and interesting things. But yeah, my guess is that some professor probably had this in their office and they needed to fill a display case. So they said, oh, here, just take this stuff or something. (laughs) Because, yeah, if someone had set out to do an Apple II display, I feel like they could have done a lot better than this just by putting Apple II into an eBay search. But uh, who knows what the story is there. Now, this is clearly the most important piece of hardware in the building because it actually has Bill Gates's code in it, right? That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the Applesoft Baker, ain't you? Maybe it was just students donating their parents' old Apple IIs or something. Yeah, it could be. There was be. just a pile of them there. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I, uh, I had sort of a tour guide of sorts while I was there, and I, uh, I asked him if he knew where these came from and what the story was, but, of course, he didn't know. You know, they have undoubtedly some sort of committee or something at the university that does this sort of stuff for them. But uh, who knows how it got there. But uh, it was, yeah, it was a bit sad. I know that's, that uh, when Steve Jobs returned to Apple in 97, the first thing he did was donate a huge amount of their archives uh, and equipment and things like that to Stanford. So maybe this is just pieces of that. Yeah, it could be. Well, if anyone at Stanford... Uh, I guess administration or whoever does these sorts of things is listening, uh, get in touch with us. We can help you set up a much nicer Apple II display for almost no money. Honestly, there's nicer stuff at the garage giveaway at Kansas Fest. So uh, (laughs) send a representative to Kansas Fest and we'll hook you up with a very nice Apple II display. How about that? Uh, Next up is a news item from A2 Central. Uh, It seems that um, Mouser is now stocking the Western Design Center's 65XX dev boards that we've talked about. The cheap ones for eighty nine or ninety nine dollars, and there's a a, um, a more expensive kit for one eighty nine or one ninety nine, depending on the options that you get. Cool. Yeah, I think it was uh, last month or the month before we uh, we did talk about this that they were now showing up on Mouser, but at the time they were uh, they were not showing any stock available. So it's cool that they now have stock. So I guess you can actually click a button now, and one will appear in your house. So, Mike, what's this? Uh, what's this thing called? The classic IDE. Talk to me about that. There's a lot of people involved uh, on Facebook with the Apple II enthusiasts group, and uh, someone posted, it was just a picture of uh, coming soon, the classic IDE Mark II. Uh, really no details uh, on that, but the, the board is made by a company, or a, a, may, it may just be a guy, uh, called Technobytes, and if you if you go to their, their website, I couldn't find any reference to the Mark II, but the old, there's you can read about the old one that's that's currently sold out, and uh, so I, and I think this is um, sort of like a, it's sort of like um, the, the board that Reactive Micro used to sell, the Micro Tur- was it the Micro Drive and the Micro Drive Turbo, uh, it's an IDE interface um, to your Apple II, so that's coming soon. Cool, yeah, and of course, uh, probably the best part of uh, an IDE inter- IDE interface 
is that you can get trivial adapters that will adapt that to a compact flash. So this is yet another way to get solid state storage for your Apple II if you have an expansion slot. This is kind of a nice option since the CFFA is currently unobtainium. So if people are looking for that, this could be another option. And it's always good just to have more hardware being produced for the Apple II. Well, speaking of hardware and, in fact, solid-state storage, we were talking about the Bulgarian fellow who does the SD Floppy 2. Um, I'm not going to attempt his name because <laughs> I would mangle it, uh, but he's uh, quite an awesome guy, and he's doing really cool stuff with hardware on the Apple II. And the newest thing is uh, he's making some sort of uh, sound card or a music card. Is that right? Yeah, so he's uh, recreated the um, the MC1 uh, ALF, which I think is a, a MIDI interface card. And the, the link that we have in the show notes, uh, that that particular auction has ended, but I think he's selling more of them. So if you're if you're into the kind of MIDI interface and playing around with that, I know that this card is kind of a desirable one. And um, the manuals have been like, uh, the manuals and the software have been hard to find. And I guess he's got a copy of that. And uh, the board itself, and, and um, it looks like this particular one sold for $51, so a uh, pretty reasonable price. Yeah, his hardware is all really reasonably priced, actually. It's one of the, the best parts uh, of, of his stuff. So, yeah, not only is he doing interesting things that, that most mostly that other people aren't doing, uh, he's also, yeah, he's also selling them very reasonably priced. I, I'm going to say his name is Playman Vesilov. Uh, I, I feel like we deserve to say his name at least, or at least attempt to. So I apologize uh, if I've said your name wrong, but uh, just, uh, yeah, we think you're awesome. All right. Uh, moving along, uh, VCF East 10.0. This is pretty exciting. looks like it's been announced. Actually, three of them. VCF 10 has been announced for April 17th through the 19th in Wall, New Jersey. Uh, VCF Southeast has been announced May 2nd and 3rd in Roswell, Georgia. And the uh, VCF Midwest has been announced for August 29th and 30th in Elk Grove Village, uh, which I think is a suburb of Chicago in Illinois. That's a lot of VCFs. Still no sign of the original, though. Yeah, I feel like I could pretty much just throw a rock and I would hit a VCF. VCF East just got uh, some attention on Slashdot, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if that does good things for attendance. Yeah, I feel like the VCF events are among the few kind of retro computing events that get some amount of mainstream traction because I've heard references to them in kind of non-retro computing circles. Uh, I just can't think of any examples offhand, but uh, so yeah, if, if any of these events is going to kind of break out more into the mainstream, I feel like that's that's the one that's got the best shot. I don't expect to see CNN rolling up at Kansas Fest anytime soon, but uh, that's <laughs> that's their loss. Well, I think these are more oriented for uh, the casual uh, casual historian or somebody who might be interested but isn't isn't geeky about this stuff. I think they're like two days long or, or, you know, Friday night and Saturday and part of Sunday and they're, they're cheap and they're kind of set up more as a, a museum kind of come in and play and enjoy the, the machines for a little while and learn about the people or learn about them from the people who set up the displays rather than a, something like Kansas Fest where it's, you know, Apple II sessions and, and you're there for a week and you get, you dive deep into that. So that makes sense that that, that would be kind of a more mainstream thing than, than what we do in Kansas City. Yeah, I think you're right. They they cast a really wide net as well. They you know they talk about all different kinds of retro computers, including you know all the way back to the you know 50s and 60s, the big iron and the the vacuum tube stuff. You know, as you say, yeah, it's it's very much set up as a 
kind of nice place to take the kids on a Saturday afternoon. And that's uh, an easier time of attracting yeah, groups of, of families than you'll ever get at uh, some sort of hardcore uh, function like the listeners of our show would attend. Um, the uh, VCF Midwest Facebook post does mention that it's going to be more expensive than last year. I guess there was some some um, problems with a place that they were renting before or that place decided they're just not renting uh, to the public anymore and they had to move. So the, it says the price has gone up a little bit, but it doesn't say how much. Last year was $79, so um, probably still pretty affordable. Cool. Have uh, any of you ever been to a VCF event? Mark? I have I have not been to one of these. Um, my, my local... Uh, pile of old hardware stomping ground the uh mit swap fest uh, oh, yeah. which is which is monthly april through october there's a pretty good turnout there pretty much all summer and all kinds of you know hardware going back to what kind of vacuum tube do you want here up through video games and retro computing and uh all kinds of stuff it's, it's a good time i in general i i come away happier if i go there to sell things because if I go there to buy things, I do, and then I have all these things. But there's 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 quite an assortment of, of goodies there. That sounds like a fun thing. Uh, out here in my neck of the woods, we have the TRW swap meet, which is was originally like a ham radio kind of thing, and uh, it's been one of these things that's been running since, I don't know, the 50s or something. And I think it's every every other once a month or last Sunday of the month or something. Anyway, I have to look it up. I'll have a link to that in the show notes if anyone is in the Southern California area and is interested in going. It's a, it's a really fun event, um, but it's not so much with the retro computing, but if you're interested in, you know, really old hardware, analog oscilloscopes and old um, CB and ham radio equipment and lots of fun stuff like that, it's a fun place to go. There's also uh, sections with cheap kind of more modern hardware if you need a cheap lcd for your apple II, you know it's a good place to go for that kind of stuff as well uh, i think the, M- the mit swap fest also started as a, as a ham radio event that sounds right yeah i think so quinn you'd mentioned um, an lcd i did yeah speaking of lcds uh looks like people are starting to retrofit them into uh, apple monitors which is kind of a fun idea I guess hopefully people aren't cannibalizing working monitors to do it. Uh, I don't think uh, there's much of that, but uh, it is a good idea. And in this case, an intrepid Apple II enthusiast has retrofitted one into an Apple IIc monitor, which is an especially good idea because it's uh, a good form factor for an LCD, and uh, it's kind of kind of nice to keep it light and portable. So uh, it's uh, it's really well executed and. Uh, What's especially neat, of course, is that it's uh, then color, which the Apple IIc monitor was not. So it's neat to see, uh, you know, the, the conversion has been done quite convincingly. Uh, so at least, you know, in a photo, I guess in real life, of course, you could tell that the glass isn't curved and all that. But uh, in photos, it looks very convincing. And uh, it's neat to see a color image on an Apple IIc monitor. So, of course, we will link to this. I have a caveat about this, actually. The As we all know, the Apple II doesn't put out exactly an NTSC signal. Uh, it's a little off, and if you get a cheap color NTSC um, LCD panel, like the kind of thing that normally goes in the back of a headrest of a car, they don't have the like horizontal hold and vertical hold adjustments on them, and so the signal can sometimes cause the image to just keep scrolling up all the time. So definitely say if you're going to do this kind of thing, 
test it with a particular panel before you build the panel into the case. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Because um, some of the, some of the pa- otherwise <laughs> otherwise has a very retro look <laughs> as the screen keeps yeah, scrolling. Yeah, we, uh, we talked about this. Uh, I think it was last month actually about the difficulty of sometimes finding an, an LCD that does work on an Apple II. Because yeah, just like you say, it's not quite NTSC. It's NTSC-ish, and uh, there are some you know there are some that work well, but there are lots that don't. So. Uh, there's a little bit of experimentation required. Yeah, so this was done by um, Javier. I'm sorry, Javier, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, so I'm not going to try. Uh, he's he's active on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group, and he's a, he's the one that does all the, the retrobriting. He's done a lot of experiments with uh, retrobrite, and uh, Call Apple is where, where I found the news item, but it links to his webpage, which has a nice write-up on the specific steps and photos and everything, so uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, Javier is sort of known as the master of Retrobrite on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group, and he is really quite good at it. He's really got the process down. He, uh, he's always posting photos of his latest Retrobrite project, and uh, yeah, they look just amazing. So back in uh, 2013, when Woz came to Kansas Fest, uh, Brian Weiser took the opportunity to introduce Call Apple's uh, Wozpack Special Edition. Um, this is a, a joint project that Brian did with Bill Martins, and at the time it was uh, only available in um, softcover, and they've announced that you can now buy it as a hardcover if you prefer that sort of reading experience. Still no ebook though. <laughs> yeah, hardcovers are kind of neat. Uh, I'm more of an ebook person these days myself, but uh, I do like hardcovers sometimes. Now, moving along with this. Next item catches my eye because it mentions the Laser 128, which was the computer that I had during my two E years. Uh, we went from an Apple II Plus to a Laser 128EX in our family. So it, apparently the Qbert clone for the Apple II called Qubit uh, didn't work on the Laser 128. Is that right? According to the article, again, on, on Call Apple, there was a, a memory location jump that would basically cause the game to stop midstream. Uh, and they have a, an analysis of the little of the, of the section of assembly code that, that caused this, and there's, it's finally been patched, so that will not happen anymore. It's a one byte change. <laughs> That's neat. Uh, I wish I had more time because I'd like to dig into this a little bit. Uh, I wonder if this was a bug that only existed in the original Laser 128. Because as I say, we had the 128 EX, and I, I do remember actually playing Qubit. It was uh, it was a game I liked. So uh, I suspect maybe it was something that, uh, maybe it was like a bug or a quirk that they fixed in the EX ROMs. I'm not sure what all the differences are exactly between, you know, there was the 128 and the 128EX and the 128EX2. And uh, I'm sure there were probably some ROM differences between the different versions. So uh, if there are any uh, laser experts out there, by all means, write in and let us know the details there. The Laser 128 was the 2E for the rest of us. Uh, Virtual Apple or Virtual Two, which is the the Macintosh Apple Two emulator, not, uh, not Virtual Apple Two, uh, which is the web-based emulator, has been updated to version seven point five point two. Um, so, and it, it addresses a couple of minor bugs. So, if you don't have that, uh, you should go get that. Definitely, anyone who does not own Virtual Two should go run, don't walk, and buy it right now. Mark, do you have Virtual Two? Uh, I do have Virtual 2. Virtual 2 was the emulator that I used to do the development for uh, Fast LED 6502. Excellent. Um, and being able to do that stop and dig in and debug, clearly it has a lot of features in there that are designed to help write new software for the Apple II, which is exactly what I was doing. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was very happy with it. Virtual 2 is an Apple II developer's dream. It's got everything you could possibly want to do that with. Sweet 16 is probably the 2GS emulator of choice on the Mac platform, and, and Virtual 2 is definitely the 8-bit Apple choice. All right. So, uh, Mike, what's this next thing about uh, vintage micro music? Okay, so uh, I think we talked about this one last month or the month before as well. Uh, Stinks, I think is, is, is how you pronounce his handle. It's what he goes by. has a uh, channel on SoundCloud, and he has gone through and extracted various uh, music tracks from, um, you know, like uh, Mockingboard discs and, and, and MIDI interfaces and things like that and, and put them on SoundCloud, and you can uh, listen to them as a playlist. And he has also now opened up a, a, web, uh, a YouTube channel so you can get, I guess, like a graphic of, of the program as, as the song is playing now. Uh, YouTube doesn't have very good uh, audio, but I mean, we're talking about 8-bit Apple II songs here, so I don't know how much that's really going to affect your listening experience. But if you prefer YouTube to, to SoundCloud, uh, that's now available. Yeah, I think YouTube audio quality could only make the Apple II sound better, honestly. <laughs> and that's why I'm a 2GS fan. Uh, a couple more music items here, since we're talking about Apple II music. Uh, last summer, we talked about Joe, I don't know, I still don't know if it's pronounced Eli or Ellie. He's a southern rocker. He's done. He's collaborated with The Clash and, and done a lot of solo stuff on his own. He, quick recap, if you didn't hear it before. In 1983, he produced an album called B484 or B484. Um, and this was done entirely with his Apple II Plus and um, um, a MIDI card and a Roland drum machine. And he took it to his record label and they said, we like it, but we don't know how to sell it. So he had to go back to the studio and re-record everything um, with standard instruments and uh, it didn't sell very well and i guess recently he was going through his archives and he found the original apple II recordings and so he released those uh as an album that you can buy now he's on tour in support of that album i don't know if he's still if he's if he's carrying around the apple II plus that he used but um uh, it uh, looks like a multi-city tour and and uh, tickets are available now if he's in your area well we will link to that in the show notes has anyone mentioned the, the Todd Rundgren connection? Have we covered that? Todd Rundgren, the uh, 80s and 90s and still today rock and roller, uh, also wrote the graphics tablet software for the Apple II. Yeah, you know, I think I knew that, but I don't think we've actually gone in depth into the history of that. Yeah, I certainly actually did not know that. Yeah, so his his band uh, was Utopia, Todd Rundgren Utopia, and the uh, the graphics tablets offer for the Apple II on the Apple branded tablet was the Utopia graphics system, written by him. Yeah, that is cool. So speaking of musicians uh, working on Apple stuff, uh, let's talk about Jonathan Mann. Okay, so um, back in the previous era of this podcast with the uh, with Ken when he was here, we mentioned that uh, Jonathan Mann had recorded a, a fun little song called uh, "He's Just the Was," um, kind of a goofy, poppy song. It's it's fun. And, he also has, has released now a, it's called the Apple Songs Mixtape, and it's about, I think, 12 or 15 Apple-related songs. And, and I went over to his website and was reading around, and he's actually, you know, he's a very good musician. And, I, you know, I think that the difference between, like, uh, you know, what, what makes uh, Weird Al Yankovic popular for all these years is that in addition to being a funny wordsmith and, and having fun with these tunes, he's a good musician as well. The, the music is good. And, and a lot of these, a lot of the jokey songs that you hear are just terrible songs in general. And, but Jonathan Mann is not, is not like that. 
and he's I guess been writing for he says he's been doing this song a day project that for like two thousand days, which is just a huge amount of music. So I guess if you do it for that long, you would get pretty good at it. But um, the the neat thing about it is that uh, this is a, a name your price album. So if you wanted to, you could download this for free. Yeah, I think most people probably know Jonathan Mann as the song a day guy. Uh, he shows up on Boing Boing and, and other sort of similar outlets regularly because, yeah, just because of obviously the sheer volume, but uh, it's quite cool. I've, I heard an interview with him recently on another podcast, and he talks about his creative process of how he manages to write a song every single day and why he still does it after so many years. Uh, he's continuing to do it. Uh, it's quite a cool uh, quite a cool process that he goes through. And so, yeah, obviously he needs to continually come up with new uh, topics for songs. And so he writes a lot of songs about current <laughs> events. And, uh, you know, he's done songs about uh, Gamergate, for example, or whatever's in the news. And uh, he's done some retro computing ones. So it's cool to see some uh, some Apple-related stuff coming out of there. He's quite a, quite a guy. Certainly not all of it is Apple II-related. Most of it's more modern-era Apple, but there's a, there's a couple of uh, gems in there for you. Yeah, if you process it down to, to one-bit speaker pops, then it's all Apple II related. <laughs> right. Uh, so speaking of Apple II music, which I put in scare quotes, uh, there's an interesting <laughs> new uh, game demo that has come out. And actually, uh, I shouldn't make fun because the music in this is actually uh, pretty good for Apple II. Uh, so there's this new game demo that has come out uh, called the Music Master RPG. It's kind of a fun little homebrew project. The, uh, it's sort of like a graphical adventure game along the lines of like the Scott Adams adventures, but the artwork is all done in low-res graphics, which is sort of retro fun. And each scene has its own music, which is kind of the theme of the uh, adventure as well. And it's uh, the, there's a lot of quite good music in it, actually. So it's definitely worth listening to if you want to see uh, what the Apple II is actually capable of with its uh, sad little speaker. The uh, author's asking for feedback on this demo on CSA2, so we will link to that thread. Yeah, his name is Tom Porter, and it doesn't look like he has any feedback yet. Uh, I guess the the gameplay may, maybe needs some work, um, but the music is great. Yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. So, uh, yeah, we'll link to that, and we'll send our, our vast, vast audience over there to give him feedback on his game. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Both of our listeners will... Flood the thread right now, I'm sure. <laughs> and, um, okay, so last summer when we did the um, we did the Lawless Legends roundtable, uh, one of the developers of that is Brendan Robert. And the other thing that he's, I guess, known for recently is that he does the Jace emulator. Or I guess that's redundant. He does uh, Jace, the Java Apple computer emulator, and that has lain dormant for a while. And so he uh, announced recently that he's back to updating it and fixing some interface bugs and adding some new features so look for that soon yeah that's great to see in our great big lawless legends episode which uh, is uh, one of our favorites that we've done actually or one of my favorites that we've done uh, yeah he mentioned he was threatening to resurrect jace at some point uh, because it was going to help them with the development of lawless legends so perhaps uh, that's the motivation there good to see that and uh, speaking of past episodes, we recently, of course, did a, the big Beagle Brothers roundtable, which was very popular with listeners, and that was lots of fun to do. Uh, well, wouldn't you know, uh, very recently, the popular uh, programming-related blog called Coding Horror, uh, many of our listeners may know it, uh, did a little post on Beagle Brothers, and he talks about how he how inspirational they were to him because they made 
you know, what would possibly otherwise be somewhat dull software since they made a lot of utilities and such things. Uh, but they made it fun. You know, as we all know, that was obviously our favorite thing about them as well was their advertisements and their documentation and everything were all really fun. And uh, so he talks a lot about that in this blog post. So, of course, we will link to that in the show notes. It's always nice to see uh, Apple II content appear in random unexpected places and especially something as close to home as the Beagle Brothers. And sadly, he doesn't mention our roundtable, but that's probably because he doesn't listen. And I'm sure it's coincidental, but it's a nice coincidence. <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually tried to go into his comment thread on that post and link to our show, uh, but his comment system refused to let me log in. It kept, I was trying to create an account so I could post, you know, it's one of these things where you have to have an account before you can post and the account creation screen was just showing a broken 404. So I, yeah, after several attempts on different computers and different browsers, uh, I gave up the, uh, the desire to plug the show was strong, but, uh, I'm afraid I, <laughs> but not that strong, <laughs> Yes, but not that strong. So hopefully someone else maybe will link him to our show. All right. Well, I think that um, two hours later brings us to the end of our news section, but that's not the end of the show. Yeah, we had lots of news, but uh, I think now we've got some woos. Don't call it that. We like was, and we know you do too. It's was news. It's woos. It's your segment. <laughs> you call it that. <laughs> we have a bumper for I was just kidding it. around with it. But we have a bumper <laughs> for it and everything now. Yeah, you just heard it. <laughs> well, I hope they heard it. If you're gonna, if you edited it in properly, <laughs> well, I will paste it in. Yes. <laughs> All right. So our our first woos item. Uh, I hate that name. <laughs> Stop that. Our first woos item is uh, kind of a retraction of sorts. Uh, a while back, we posted an article uh, from the OC Register uh, about, Ugh. yeah, it's, you know, when you do this podcast and you're gathering up all this, these links, uh, I will be honest, we don't always have the time to read them all very carefully before including <laughs> them in the show because we're just in, we're so enthusiastic to get all of the latest and greatest Apple II news to the listeners and our editorial staff failed us on this one, I'm afraid. We had posted the article uh, a couple of shows ago, I think it was, and it was, I guess, Steve Wozniak posting some very kind of alarmist sounding things about how computer technology is going off the rails and the world's going to end and cats and dogs living together and it's all going to be terrible. <laughs> One of these paragraphs reads uh, that, that he blames the failure of the Apple II on the Apple III, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yes, we know the Apple III didn't do well, but I don't think I don't think Waz has ever said or even hinted that he felt that the Apple II was a failure. The interesting thing about this is that I think this is one of these articles where one person, probably at the OC Register, wrote this, and then everybody everybody else kind of paid their license fee and just sort of reran it and you know changed the opening and closing paragraphs a little bit because I kept seeing that same phrase over and over. As I was skimming through this, looking back, he blames Apple II's failure for the fact that it only allowed users to play games, which I don't think that's true. Yeah, there's just so much in this article that's just rubbish. And yeah, that's kind of why I'm calling it a retraction. I sort of apologize for posting it in that in that episode where we did. <laughs> uh, it's the whole article is it's there's a couple of quotes taken just way, way out of context to make some sort of fictional editorial point that the author wants to make. And uh, it's just the whole thing is clickbait and uh, way out of context quotes. It's just just rubbish. It's not even journalism. It's just uh, yeah, clickbait internet trash. It sort of paints him as a, a kind of a paranoid luddite, 
which <clears throat> not to keep bringing his appearance in 2013 at Kansas Fest up over and over again but I remember while he was there he had he's got like three or four cell phones like um, he had it's like the latest of each line because he likes to play with these toys so much and every time Apple releases something he's down standing in line at, at um, Los Gatos store or, or one of the other ones local to him wherever he is so I, I don't I really I'm sure he thinks about technology a lot but I doubt that he's really all that afraid of it no I mean we've all seen those images of, of his sort of his daily carry he has this backpack that has like 13 computers and 58 cell phones and 6,000 chargers in it that he carries. And so, yeah, to characterize him as some sort of anti-technology Luddite is just ridiculous. And then, yeah, the things he says about the Apple II, quote, only being good for games and just other just nonsensical things that he would never say and don't make any sense in any context. Uh, yeah, this whole article is just awful. And uh, so we apologize uh, for linking to that. <laughs> but uh, We're sorry. I, bl- I blame Mike. So uh, moving along to some more interesting stuff with Waz in the news. Uh, well, not in the news, in fact, in a commercial. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's seen this, but Cadillac is running this series of TV commercials where they have various uh, celebrities in them talking about the merits of the car or the company or whatever. It's, they're, they're sort of these uh, kind of artistic uh, meta ads that are popular now where they don't actually talk about the product. They just talk about visions of the future and what products mean for humanity in a very general kind of sense. And of course, Waz is a good candidate for that sort of t- that sort of thing. So they have him in the commercial talking about his visions for computers and how he saw them changing the world and uh, has absolutely nothing to do with Cadillac. <laughs> but it's <laughs> Waz on screen talking, talk, doing his thing. So it's, uh, it's fun to watch it. Its effects on society really came about because, not because I was selfish and wanted one for myself, which I did. It's because I had had a passion my whole life. I wanted to teach myself to build computers. I wanted to build these things for free. I just wanted to do it for the world. And, you know, when you want something, that's what you do the best. I think the idea is that you know they, they get these creative types and and the, the visionaries and geniuses and you know by by having them talk about how they change the world you're supposed to associate that with Cadillac. The thing is that Waz is such a such a public personality, I guess, and and you know if you follow him on on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that, he's he drives a Tesla. He does not drive a Cadillac, and I don't think, I don't think after this he switched to to Cadillac. Yeah, no, yeah. The great irony here is that yeah, Waz would never be a Cadillac person. He'd be all over yeah, the greatest, uh, you know, coolest electric cars or whatever is the kind of high tech, kind of progressive type of thing. So it does not shock me at all that he drives a Tesla. I, on the other hand, drive a Nissan Leaf, which is the Tesla for the rest of us. <laughs> um, and the final woos item that we have. Is that uh, uh, was uh, we talked earlier about um, um, the this new Jobs biopic being filmed? I guess filming is wrapped now. But uh, somebody asked him about uh, his choice of, of cast because he was kind of unhappy, uh, you know, with um, decisions made about the last film. So he comments, um, he says, casting is not my business. You can only really judge a cast after you see a movie. To me, it has to be an entertaining movie. In, in cases like this, at least partly documentary, there's a striving for closeness to reality, but it's not the only element that makes a movie entertaining. I'm happy as I would be anyway. 
Uh, I'm especially happy to be played by, he calls him Josh Rogan. Um, <laughs> Seth Rogan, for multiple reasons, I hope that he turns in a stellar performance that moves him forward. So, um, yeah, we commented that, uh, of course, the the movie moved from Sony over to Universal Pictures and, and was, while it was at Sony, was the script consultant and Universal opted not to, to pick up that contract. So he's not involved with the film anymore, but it sounds like he's at least more upbeat about this than he was about the last one. That's really funny that you got his name wrong. Uh, I'm guessing he's not actually following these proceedings that closely. How about you, Mark? Are you planning to see any of these, uh, or this Jobs movie, or have you seen any of the other 84 that have been made? <laughs> I, you know, it seems like you could do a whole, uh, you know, a whole film festival of, you know, retelling the same story again and again. And I'm not sure how that would be. Uh, the new one looks like it's going to be fun. I do like that they have, you know, Waz included as a significant character. Uh, as was discussed on previous episodes of the podcast, you get the feeling that the focus is going to be on latter day jobs, but that's okay. That's okay. That's funny. I wouldn't be shocked if someone does end up doing a jobs film festival at some point. Uh, it uh, would be a funny idea. I will not be in attendance. I, I think actually everyone would not be in attendance. <laughs> so. Yes, if, uh, if theaters are listening, uh, don't bother doing that. I think we're all pretty tired of, of uh, these Jobs movies. I might see this one because I do kind of like Seth Rogen, and uh, he does make kind of a funny-looking Waz, but uh, yeah, I'm not in a hurry to go see these. I, I'd rather watch a film festival of uh, all the old Apple commercials. <laughs> yes, that that I would go to. There's some uh, there's some fun ones. Uh, in fact, I assume you've seen, there's a YouTube channel that's, uh, I think it's at literally called Every Apple TV Commercial Ever or something about something like that. Have you guys seen this? Absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> Absolutely. a pretty fun one. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes because that's a fun one. Uh, it goes all the way back. And there's some dedicated fans out there archiving all this stuff. All right, well, that's lots of news and lots of woos. And we also have lots of feedback. This is what happens when we go so long between recordings. So uh, let's roll into that, shall we? You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. Our first email comes from Brian uh, Brian Weiser, who many people will know from KFest. He's a regular there and uh, also active in the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group. Uh, he says, Hi, Mike and Quinn. Thanks for taking the time to acknowledge uh, A2 Central and Sean's efforts. We recently did kind of a, a tribute uh, to Sean. He was expressing in uh, the Facebook group that uh, he was struggling a bit to keep up with A2 Central. So we sent lots of love his way to keep doing that. So Brian says, A2 Central, along with the news groups, was how I discovered the Apple II community many years ago. And I'm sure Sean, like many of us, often feels that his archival and news efforts are overlooked or underappreciated. So it's great you went to such great lengths. I know that other people are part of A2 Central, and Sean has been the driving force for quite a while. And he says also thanks for mentioning callapple.org. Bill and I are uh, expanding our news coverage uh, beyond Apple II to include current Apple and related technologies that will be of interest to a larger audience. So I assume that means Mac and iPhone and such things. We are also seeking volunteers for writing if you happen to know anyone who is interested. So if any of our listeners uh, have an urge to write for Call Apple, by all means, get in touch with Brian over there at Call Apple. Our next email comes from a listener, Peter, and he says, Hi, Mike and Quinn. I've been a user of Apple II since elementary school way back in the early 80s. I have owned and tinkered with an Apple IIgs since grade 12. Hooray, Apple IIgs. 
I just recently discovered your podcast. And anyway, I was listening to your episode 41. Funny how you mentioned Burnaby BC in, the, in this episode, because he currently lives there. And he says he thinks he's found a download link for Apple Geos images on Asimov. So we talked a while back uh, about Geos and uh, we weren't at the time able to find download links for it. And I think we've since posted them. Uh, we did get some listeners write to us to uh, provide links for that. So uh, thank you, Peter. We will definitely provide that link as well in the show notes. And I think, uh, Mike, you and I have talked about doing a Geos episode, have we not? Yeah, we probably should. It's, uh, I think, well, it's not the only graphical user interface for the Apple II, but it was by far the most popular. Definitely, yeah. And you and I were both big fans of it, so we've toyed with the idea of yes. dedicating an entire episode to Geos, and I think, uh, yeah, we should definitely do that. I want to do it. Uh, Mark, did you ever use Geos? I did use Geos, uh, and at some point, I, I uh, when my sister went off to college, I set her up with a 2C+, and, uh, and a Geos environment, and she did word processing on that, I think, for most of her, her time at college. I was pretty happy with it. I mean, y- you got a lot of the ease of use that a certain other Apple line was was getting credit for, you know, on, on much less expensive hardware. For sure. It was really quite remarkably powerful for uh, for an 8-bit Apple II. And uh, yeah, I was the same way all through school. I used Geos for all of my school papers and uh, projects and things. Uh, I really, really loved it. My only complaint about it was it it was sort of a walled garden. You know, it had all its own file formats and disk formats and everything. So the data is uh, is very difficult to get out into any other format. I don't know if it's possible. Uh, so we'll have to explore that in a, our future dedicated to Geos episode, which we are definitely doing now. All right, uh, moving right along, we've got another email from listener Vladimir, and he says, uh, hi guys and girls, awesome show as always, uh, don't be so gloomy. He's referencing the source code for Pinball Construction Set for the Atari that we linked to, uh, I believe it was in the last show, and uh, we had mentioned that, uh, we talked about it because Bill Budge had used the Apple II in his development pipeline for the Atari version of Pinball Construction Set. And uh, Vladimir points out that actually the source code for uh, the Apple II version of Pinball Construction Set is also available. So he links to that. Uh, turns out Bill Budge has a GitHub page with uh, source code on it from his Apple II days, which is super awesome. And I did not know this existed. So thank you very much, Vladimir. We will definitely be linking to that in the show notes. We need to get that guy on the show. Yes. We've had people ask to have him on the show and... Hmm. Uh, rest assured listeners we have been trying uh, we've been working the network uh, as it were to try and uh, get him on the show and uh, if he's listening please uh, respond to <laughs> all those mutual friends that I've had trying to bug you uh, <laughs> I actually I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before but I actually worked with Bill at uh, the 3DO company I was there for a while and uh, a bunch of the old EA people and actually old Atari people as, had, as well had come over to 3DO from EA when uh, Trip Hawkins left to start 3DO. And he brought a lot of the sort of senior engineers with him and Bill Budge was there. So I worked, uh, he was in the tools group that used, that wrote this kind of central stuff that lots of different projects used. And uh, so I got to meet him a couple times. And uh, yeah, I'll be honest, I was uh, geeking out pretty badly. Uh, <laughs> it was ostensibly, uh, I think we were meeting, we were talking about, uh, I was trying to use his math library and something on our project, and so I'm standing there trying to ask him questions, and my brain is just exploding uh, because I'm standing here talking to Bill Budge. Uh, but, 
Yeah, he was in Which a, is precisely why he doesn't come on shows like this. <laughs> probably. I'm sure it would be very, very embarrassing for him. Uh, I'm, yeah, I, I, there may have been some squeeing going on. I think I can mostly contained it. But uh, uh, yeah, he was, like I say, in another department, so I didn't have a lot of close interaction with him. But I definitely crossed paths with him a couple of times long before Open Apple. Uh, anyway, so that because of that, I have some sort of mute. We have some mutual acquaintances, which I've been leaning on to try and get him on the show, but uh, no luck so far. All right. Well, speaking of Apple II celebrities, we got an email from Jesse Blue, and that is a name that I hope every 2GS person out there knows uh, of Ninja Force fame. Uh, you may have seen his name in uh, shout outs and making shout outs in various scrolling texts in awesome 2GS demos, uh, of which Mike would know nothing about. And uh, so we got an email from him, which Who, is what? <laughs> got an email from him. And uh, yeah, he's one of these people that uh, I always was really fascinated by uh, because he produced these amazing 2GS demos that at the time were just sort of magic to me. And I never uh, really could quite conceive of how they were written. Uh, anyway, uh, he says, nice episode in reference to our Ben Heck episode. Uh, he says Ben Heck failed to mention exactly how much he would charge for a GS laptop. Uh, for anyone who missed the show or doesn't recall, we had Ben Hackendorn on the show to talk about his 2GS laptop that he built uh, back in 2008. And he has stated many times in many different ways that he will never be making another one. And uh, we, of course, as our duty to the listeners, asked him anyway uh, if he would make one. <laughs> and uh, we, of course, uh, I think got the answer no. I think we got him to admit if there was enough money that he might do it. Uh, no one will say no to a dump truck full of money, but I suspect the cost for doing so would be more than anyone would be willing to pay. He's a busy guy, and uh, his time is valuable. Nevertheless, maybe someday, right? Of course, Mike, you wouldn't want a 2GS laptop anyway. No, I would just smash it. <laughs> just you, Would you order one from Ben Heck just to smash it? I would. I would, <laughs> yes, and I'd put it on YouTube. <laughs> You'd be that guy. <laughs> well, you know, he might make an Apple III laptop because he, you know, he likes interesting and unusual projects that he hasn't done before. So we might be able to talk him into making an <laughs> Certainly Apple III. Certainly unusual. I, I don't know if you could cram all those chips into a little laptop, though. That is a really crowded motherboard. Plus, when you were done, you know, there would be only two pieces of software you could run on it. Yeah, and then you'd have to, like, pick it up and drop it every 20 minutes. <laughs> That's right. Not because it actually overheats. He, he just builds that in there so that you can experience what it would be like to, to use an Apple III. Definitely, yeah. He would have to put a little accelerometer in there. So every so often, yeah, you'd have to have to drop it. <laughs> that would be amazing, actually. I would like to see that. All right. And last but not least, we have an email from listener Dugenstein, which sounds like some sort of universal monster version of some guy named Doug. <laughs> uh, Stein says, great podcast, guys, and girl, I hope, is implied there. I recently purchased a 2GS that I have wanted since it first came out. Oh, bravo. However, my system doesn't see the 3.5-inch floppy drives due to a cracked socket on the motherboard for the VGC chip. Hmm, that's unfortunate. Please keep adding more 2GS topics as there are no podcasts related just to that machine. That is true. Uh, well, I think that's a plan. I think you wrote that, and he, nobody actually wrote it and said that. <laughs> it could be a plan because he, <laughs> he then goes on to talk about one of my favorite uh, topics within the 2GS genre, which is the Task Force swear hack. Uh, he says, uh, "Task Force with the adult language hack." Uh, since I so we uh, we linked recently to the Task Force uh, swear hack uh, after a listener uh, managed to uh, image it off of a disc. Uh, following our episode where we talked about it at length, and I mourned the possible loss of it to the sands of time since I had only ever seen my own copy of it and wasn't able to image it. 
So uh, we linked to that as a Shrinkit archive, and he says since he doesn't have a Mac and runs his 2GS in emulation, he asks, is there a non-Shrinkit format available that I can obtain, such as an uncompressed disk image? Uh, thanks, keep up the great podcasts, and happy new year. Okay, well, it is new year. Uh, yeah, so this is an interesting question, how to get a uh, Shrinkit archive from the internet into something usable on real hardware or as a disk image in emulation. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, this is where buying um, something like the CFFA card or uh, one of these other emulators comes in handy because you can just throw your disk image uh, onto your SD card and, and and stick it in there, and I, I don't I don't know if he's trying to boot from it or not, but you know all you got to do on the two GS is get into to GSOS, and then um, you can use like I think Asimov is the name of the utility or Shrinkit or something like that to to reconstitute that image back into a um, a floppy disk or load it on your hard drive. Um, if you if you were fortunate enough to be able to buy you know the the Ethernet card, you can use the um, you can use that on your local area network for uh, file transfer, and you can transfer it that way with uh, FTP. Um, but other than that, yeah, it it, it gets kind of difficult. Yeah, there are some uh, modern desktop uh, archive utilities that will do shrink it as well. So uh, I've, there's definitely one for the Mac, which I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, I think there should be one for PCs as well. I feel like I've seen one somewhere along the way, um, but I'm not sure. So that's another option is just to open the archive on a modern uh, machine and transfer it uh, into the emulator that way or something along those lines. So uh, yeah, hopefully that was helpful. And if not, you know, maybe a user will uh, make a disk image uh, for you and we can uh, link to that in the next episode. All right. Well, that is uh, all we have for feedback this month. Uh, Actually, we have one more. Oh, I do have one more. I take that back. Andrew Rowan, who was on our our show last month talking about... uh, uh, Oz Kfest wrote in to point out that uh, uh, we I talked about uh, the Halley Project and, and how that's a, a great example of a good educational game as opposed to some of the other garbage that was out there for the Apple II. Um, there is a, a computer gaming world that's number uh, number twenty six from March of nineteen eighty six that has a nice review on that game and you can download that entire magazine in PDF format from the Computer Gaming World um, Museum and it's about twenty megabytes so it's it's not huge and uh, you can read it as you play it. Excellent. And I guess we should also mention that on Facebook and other uh, areas, we got a lot of positive feedback on the Beagle Brothers reunion roundtable that we did. So thanks. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that, yeah, everyone. A lot of email that people people really, uh, really love that. And uh, we loved making that. So again, thanks to the, to the, the Beagles for, for showing up and hanging out with us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to make. I think Beagle Brothers is dear to everybody, uh, every Apple II user's heart. Uh, Mark, did you know and love Beagle Brothers back in the day? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think that my favorite single piece of material that they produced, I mean, I, I love the packaging and the ads and and the software too, but <laughs> but let's be honest here. The um, slip covers for the five-inch discs had on the back of them uh, all kinds of icons for the, you know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this with this diskette. Uh, and it was sort of a parody of the standard, don't expose it to magnetic fields, don't puncture it. Instead, it had, you know, don't feed it to an alligator and don't put it down the toilet and things like this. And and But they did it in exactly the same style. And if you just glanced at it, you just go right past it. But I love those. And I think I still have some of those. Those are, those are a treasure. 
Yeah, they really are. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, we should try and find an image of that and link to it in the show notes because they are just hysterical. Yeah, it's their advertisements and materials in general just had a lot of sort of comedic Easter eggs like that that you might not notice on first glance. And uh, yeah, the, yeah the how to treat, how to handle a floppy disk uh, warnings that they snuck in there were definitely uh, hysterical. So uh, yeah, we'll try and find an image of that and link to it. All right, so I think that wraps up our user feedback, unless you have anything else, Mike. Um, that's all I have. Let's, let's talk about some eBay stuff. All right. On this show where we don't talk about eBay. Look, rare. Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay. So a while back, we were talking about uh, Apple IIc bags, those carrying bags that everybody loves. And I had uh, bought one myself not too long ago on eBay for what I thought was a, uh, a really good deal. And then uh, <laughs> turns out I, I probably overpaid, as many of us do on eBay. Uh, Mike, you emailed me with this funny information the other day. Why don't you tell us what you found? Oh, so a little background. Um, my dad uh, had one of those um, early Apple PowerBooks, and he had it in this leather laptop bag, and and the bag had the uh, a little you know the, the rainbow Apple logo. It was actually like a plastic one that had been set into the pla- into the into the leather. And and I thought, man, it'd be cool to have one of those again. So I went to to eBay, and um, the result was that um, I, I sent Quinn an email and said. Uh, so type this into eBay search engine, and, and the, the term was a rainbow Apple laptop bag, and you get you get a bunch of the the more modern ones that the kind that I was looking for, but you also get a ton of these Apple II C laptop bags where the the owners don't know what they are, and so they're selling them for like twenty bucks, twenty five bucks, and then I I said and then go ahead and clear your your search out. And do just search for Apple to see bag. And there was like three listings and they were started at like $85 or something. So I thought that was kind of a, a really funny example of, of how easy it is to miss stuff. Just if you, if you get a couple of search terms wrong in, in the eBay search engine. For sure. eBay, as I think many regular users know, is, is often the best deals nowadays. I mean, you know, the dealers and stuff are really savvy on there now. So the best deals are generally from someone who doesn't know what they have and or someone uh, who has mislisted something. So sometimes it pays to search for you know, the thing you want but misspell it in various ways because you'll find that item that nobody else is finding because the terms are misspelled or things that are listed in the wrong category. You know, go search in the antique section instead of the vintage computing section, you know, things like that. But it takes a lot of time sometimes to find those uh, poorly listed items uh, that are the best deals. So sometimes, like you say, uh, you stumble on this search term that just produces exactly what you want. And needless to say, I cried a little bit when I saw all these beautiful <laughs> Apple IIc bags, many of which are in better condition than mine and are a third of the price. So if anyone out there is looking uh-huh. for an Apple IIc bag and you want to pay a third of what I did, uh, go search for Rainbow Apple Laptop Bag and you will be pleasantly surprised. Well, I didn't didn't mean to make you feel bad, Quinn. I think I, I noticed this phenomena the first time when I was searching for some Apple III stuff, actually. And if you, you know, so in eBay, when you're searching for Apple III, it's Apple, and then you, it's three capital 
letter I's or small letter I's. And, but I've noticed that people, and I haven't seen this in a long time. I'm sure they figured it out by now, but sometimes somebody will list it and it'll be Apple, but it'll be three L's, which look like the capital I's or three ones. Oh, wow. Clever. Okay. I haven't tried that. Yeah. I've got a search term that I'm sure most of us do this where you do like Apple two with the number two and then II and then capital II and those variations, but and two E with the two. (laughs) But yeah, I never thought about the ones and the L's. Wow. Hmm. Sneaky. All right. Well, that's all the eBay that we have for this month, which is good because we don't talk about eBay on this show. What we do talk about though is weird games. You know Choplifter, you know Loadrunner, but do you know this? It's time for a weird game. So, uh, Mike, why don't you start us off with your pick this month? My pick is a game called Super Martian The Adventure. I, I don't remember a lot about this other than that it was a, an odd game that, that I saw back in high school and, and had basically forgotten about because I, I, don't, I don't really see it in a lot of places. It's made by a company called Computer Easy, and I bet this is probably one of, you know, like three products that they made or something. Um, but it's an adventure game, and uh, yeah, check it out. And you should also check it out because they have a really funny-sounding URL, Mock <laughs> Well, I think that's actually the Museum of Computer Adventure Game History. No, I'm pretty sure it's Mock Ag. I'm pretty sure that's, I think that's how they would intend that to be pronounced. All right. So once again, you managed to pull one out that I have definitely not heard of. So well done, you. Uh, My pick this month is one that some people may have heard of, but it's definitely weird, which is why I love it. Uh, It's called Knights of Legend, and it was definitely one of my favorite Apple II games. It's the kind of game that you just don't see anymore because it required a level of dedication to play that I think no one these days would ever put up with. So the thing shipped on, if I recall correctly, eight floppy disks, both sides, so 16 sides, and it was it was a, so ambitious, this game. It's hard to sort of explain how ambitious this game was. It was just too big for an Apple II, I think is the way to say it. Uh, it's sort of, a, I guess, what would be considered a typical RPG nowadays where you're traveling across the land with your party of adventurers and you're equipping them with various things and increasing their skills by battling monsters and so on. But just every single aspect of this game is just insanely detailed. So for example, there's, uh, you know, every single piece of equipment keeps track of its own damage and it wears out and your swords get dull and, you know, every character's limbs are all tracked uh, for how if you have bruises on your legs or whatever, it keeps track of all that. And uh, the combat sequences uh, are these just massive, elaborate affairs where you're moving your party through towns and uh, in and out of buildings one step at a time. And when you engage with an enemy, you're choosing combat moves. Literally, uh, you're choosing among multiple different types of sword swing and then defending with multiple different types of sidestep and lean maneuvers and shield maneuvers Every single swing of your sword requires, you know, six or seven choices in a series of nested menus. And so you can imagine a single combat literally takes several hours in this game. So to complete the game, I don't know, I can't even imagine how many hundreds or probably thousands of hours it would require to actually finish this game. I played a lot of it, but never even made a dent in it. And uh, if that wasn't enough, 
the actual time commitment of playing the game, uh, because it was on so many discs uh, and it was so elaborate, there was a lot of loading in this game. So you spent a lot of time flipping and swapping discs around. Even with two floppy drives, you still you spent a lot of time flipping and swapping discs. In fact, for example, there was this uh, one of your uh, there was an inventory screen where you could see like a group photo of your party kind of close up and filled the screen. It was super cool. You'd see all your equipment and everything uh, that you had on everybody. You made this really nice group photo of everybody. But to do that, you had to swap discs several times while that screen was loading <laughs> to give you a sense of this. So if you ever wanted to see the group photo of your party, uh, you would select the menu option, and then you would go through a series of swapping and flipping discs around while it did who knows what, presumably, I don't know, loading images of equipment, or I don't know what it was doing, but... And that's kind of how this game went from start to finish. You were just swapping discs every time something happened. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it, it's, yeah, like I say, it's the kind of game that would never fly today, but it was the kind of game that I loved back then, not just because of the detail, but uh, in those days, you used to measure the quality of a game by how thick the manual was, and uh, this thing was a beast. It was it must have been an inch thick. It was a novel, this thing. It had massive, elaborate tables of equipment and how different things interacted with different races and oh if you're a dark elf from this particular region and you're this age then this particular sword does this particular damage to this particular type of enemy in this situation or that situation if it's nighttime in the spring and the level of detail was absolutely insane and it was all laid out in the manual for your min-maxing pleasure so uh, for all of these reasons uh, and many more it's the kind of game that could only have existed in this particular weird time the end of the 80s. Yeah, the learning curve was steep and the commitment required was high. Not everybody's cup of tea for sure. But, you know, as Apple II games go, uh, you know, it really was fantastic. Visually, it was a sight to behold. It was really a lovely looking game. It had a graphical interface with cool iconographic buttons. And, you know, when you're moving around in towns, your party was represented by this kind of 3D helmet that rotated back and forth. You know, the attention to detail and the graphics just everywhere was really fantastic for, you know, if you're wondering how good an Apple II game can really look, I think this is this is the game to look at. Um, just beautiful. So if you like these kinds of uh, sort of Western-style uh, RPG games, this, this is definitely one to try. And it might be possible nowadays to set up an emulator that could play this really well without all of the waiting for loading and disk swapping. I would have to look into that. It might be possible to set up an emulator with, you know, eight floppy drives and uh, uh, set up some flags that it would have to wait for the uh, virtual loading times and all that. Definitely uh, one that I think people should check out. Do either of you guys, have you ever heard of this game? I've heard of it. I remember seeing ads for it in the magazine, um, but I, uh, I don't think I ever played it. Okay, yeah, they, they ran a lot of ads for this game. They were definitely pushing it. I think it was it was a real kind of marquee title uh, for them at the time, I think. Uh, but yeah, it uh, definitely didn't seem to do very well. So, uh, yeah, that's that's Knights of Legend. That's my pick for this month's Weird Game. And the PDF that I was looking for for uh, Super Martian finally loaded, so I will tell you a little bit more about the game. Um, so, like I said, it, it's an adventure game. Oh, and the great thing is that it's it's not copy protected, so you can. Um, it's not that's not as much of an issue now. I, I always loved companies that you know they say right in the beginning of the manual, you know, go ahead and back this up. So that's a great thing. A plus for Computer Easy. I, you know, I don't like I said, don't know whatever happened to them. Uh, the game is uh, came out in 1987, which is pretty late in the the uh, run of 8-bit Apple IIs. 
Um, maybe why it didn't get much traction. I do remember enjoying it quite a bit. Um, the story is that uh, Super Martian came to Earth uh, in an effort to escape the hostilities which were ravaging his home planet of Mars. His Martian name is unpronounceable by human tongues, yet the letters on his suit resemble uh, the English letters M and S in that order. He never bothered to change the order of the letters to fit his Earth name, Super Martian, which makes no sense at all. The first creature that Super Martian met upon his arrival to Earth was a stray dog called Tops, you are the first human that Super Martian uh, has really taken an interest in. Uh, in fact, you are the most intelligent creature he has ever met on Earth. One day, Tops wandered away and became lost. Super Martian asked you to accompany him on a journey to find the lost dog. So this whole thing is about you and Super Martian trying to find this dumb dog. And it's it's silly and it's fun and it's it's definitely not... It's not going to rank up there with the classic Infocom games as far as, as masterful storytelling or writing or anything like that, but it's it's fun. And like I said, it, it's one that like, if you if you type uh, Super Martian the Adventure into Google and put quotes around it, I think you get like four results or something. So it's it's not a, a common game that I think everyone's heard of. All right. So that's it for Weird Gaming. Let's move on to tech, shall we? Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. So this month in tech, uh, it's been a while actually, so I guess since we've done a tech segment. So what I thought I'd talk about this month is something that uh, I think might be helpful to a lot of uh, Apple II developers like myself. And uh, what I've got here is a collection of bookmarks. Back in the day, of course, we would have programmed the Apple II with a giant stack of books next to us uh, with pages dog-eared and post-it notes marking important things everywhere. Uh, but nowadays, I program with a whole bunch of tabs open in my browser for reference. So I wanted to link to the set that I've been using. I've basically settled on this particular set of uh, references for things that I use while programming Apple II stuff. So the first one is the uh, CA65 user's guide. So if, like me, you're cross-developing for the Apple II, then CA65 uh, may be your development environment of choice. It certainly is mine. I'm a big fan. So I keep the reference guide for that handy. It's got all the syntax for the assembler directives and uh, all the little you know tricks for labels that it will do and so on. So that's a good thing to have handy. The next one I have is from a site called NTL World, uh, and it's a 6502 reference, and it's actually a uh, Commodore 64 site, and it's for it's intended for like Commodore scene demo scene programmers. But what I like about it is just the format of it. Obviously, it's you know 6502, so it's relative to us or relevant to us, and it's got a really nice uh, layout. Everything is nicely linked within. Uh, within the reference, you can see how all the instructions relate to each other and all the addressing modes. And it's got a nice kind of pseudocode section for each instruction, so you can see how it uh, behaves. If for no other reason, the best part about this link is that under the uh, compare instruction, it has a little table that explains, you know, if you want to compare two numbers and branch based on, you know, whether they're less than or equal to and they're signed numbers or they're greater than and they're unsigned or, you know, not equal to and they're signed or, you know, all the different combinations of comparisons that you might do with numbers and signed and unsigned. Uh, it explains what kind of compare you do and what kind of branch you do. And that's just awesome because it's sometimes a little mind bending to think, okay, I'm, I want to do a less than or equal to and their numbers are signed. So then I got to do a BMI and then I got to do a BQ and, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit brain-melting sometimes exactly how the branches interact with the various status flags in the CPU. So 
Yeah, this little chart is awesome, so I will definitely link to that. Uh, the next one I use is a site called uh, 6502 Coding Algorithms. And this is a nice quick reference for the kinds of things that you commonly do that are sort of a hassle on the 6502. Things like moving 16-bit chunks around, 16-bit math, 32-bit math, logical operations on large chunks, moving chunks of memory around. So the kind of common operations that you would do that are more than a few instructions. You know, and these are obviously all solved problems. Lots of people smarter than me have come along and done, figured out what the fastest way to do it in a particular situation is. So this is kind of a quick reference for, for all that kind of stuff. Kind of a cookbook for 6502 sorts of tasks that you might need to do. The next one I have in the list is an Applesoft basic reference. This is really great if you're doing any kind of real low-level stuff with Applesoft basic. And, you know, it's got things like the Applesoft error codes and all the different peaks and pokes. And it's also just a kind of a nice reference to all the Applesoft basic functions, what they all do and so on. Good for the average Applesoft programmer, but also for low-level stuff if you're doing any kind of dark and dirty Applesoft things. And the next one is a site from a fellow named Terrence J. Bolt. And he has kind of a cool Apple II programming site that has a lot of the more esoteric things in it. It's got you know things like Apple Talk on the 2GS and how to program an image writer or how to program with the smart port, you know, how to detect the vertical blank on an Apple II, uh, how to work with the mouse, you know, on the Apple IIe and IIc. So these kinds of things that are kind of hard to find information on, frankly. He's got a really great summary of a lot of these sorts of uh, more esoteric topics. So that's also a great reference that I keep handy. And the next one is a 65CO2 reference. You know, I use that Commodore page that I mentioned for most of my reference, but of course the 2E Enhanced and 2C have the 65CO2 in them, which has a few extra instructions and addressing modes, which are awesome. So I keep that around just so I can reference, you know, keep in my mind what the uh, extra uh, modes are on the 65CO2 if you're targeting those later Apple II platforms. And of course, uh, it's, I would use this one all the time, but it's uh, honestly, it's not as good as the Commodore page is as far as how the instructions are, are cross-referenced and so on. So um, moving along, uh, the next one is a, an FAQ from apple2.org.za which uh, it's similar to that other site I mentioned where it's kind of a deep dive on some of the more obscure topics like mouse programming and uh, some of the low-level disk 2 stuff and that kind of stuff. So uh, again, obscure low-level stuff. I think it's kind of like a, an FAQ of collected wisdom from CSA2, something, something like that. And the last one I've got here is a site that we've mentioned on the show before called Jamtronics. And what I love about this is uh, he's got the complete source listing for Applesoft Basic, and it's all on one page, you know, no weird pagination that you have to click through. It's all on one page, it's all searchable, and it's all hyperlinked. So you can click from one label to another within the jump instructions and so on. It's just, if you're doing any kind of low-level stuff with Applesoft, if you want to interact with Applesoft from assembly language in any way at all, uh, this is a, a must-have reference. I think there is no better Applesoft source code listing uh, on the internet. So I keep that handy as well. And of course that will be in this link collection. Uh, so that's it. You know, I keep, uh, like I'm sure many browsers do this, uh, Safari has this thing where you can have a collection of links as a single bookmark and you just click that bookmark and it opens a window with all those tabs. 
And I use that feature for this. So when I'm doing my Apple II programming, I click that button and I get all my references right there. Uh, oh, what I would, awesome. yeah, oh, what I would have given for that ability in 1987 or whatever. Mark, do you have any uh, favorite programming references? Oh my goodness, uh, mine are uh, since, since I sort of took a hiatus from the 6502 coding. Um, many of things that I found when I jump back into it are um, some of the same ones that Quinn mentioned. Um, but now I'm like frantically scribbling these all down. These are great, <laughs> Quinn. I did ha- I did have one question for you. You're talking about the. Uh, the different models of the 6502 and whether you're targeting like, you know, an Apple II or later or an Apple IIe or later and, and so on. Because I just wrote and, and released this open source library and I wanted it to be as broadly uh, applicable as possible, I stuck to the original 6502 instruction set and did not use any of the, all that fancy newfangled stuff. I, I'm curious, Quinn, whether whether you find yourself making those kinds of decisions as you're coding also? You know, it depends on what I'm writing, I guess. I think kind of like modern software, I want to target the lowest possible level of Apple II that can do what I want. So if I was writing something something basic like a disk utility or something, I would definitely code it to, to the Apple II Plus sort of architecture. I wouldn't go any lower than that. I don't think we need to support, you know, the original 4K Apple II or whatever, but a 48K II Plus is kind of a good min spec, I think, for any Apple II project. But uh, my current project, which I'm going to be debuting at Kansas Fest this year, is uh, definitely has some higher requirements. That's the one with the interrupts that you're not talking about? <laughs> yes, exactly. So that has some higher requirements. So I just went ahead and I'm just targeting the 2E enhanced and newer with that, which I think honestly covers the bulk of the Apple II community these days anyway. You two plus users can send your hate mail to Mike for that one. But so, yeah, it's, it's a tough call. Um, <laughs> I had originally visions of doing this project and supporting the 2 Plus, but, you know, about a quarter of the way into it, it was quickly became apparent that supporting the 2 Plus for this particular type of project was going to basically double the workload, and uh, it's enough of a project as it is, so I just, yeah, I made the hard choice to drop that support. I think it was worth doing in this particular case because, you know, it really, it made the rest of the code so much better. It allowed me to just totally unlock, you know, the power of the 65 CO2 and go nuts with all the new instructions and the code got faster and smaller. And uh, I could go nuts with um, using extended memory and uh, all these sorts of things uh, that, of course, you can't do on the 2 Plus. So, uh, yeah, it's case-by-case basis. I think it's nice to support the 2 Plus if you can, but uh, if it's going to ultimately hurt the project or add so much development time that you won't finish the project, then I don't, I don't think it's worth it. So I don't have any hard numbers on this, but I feel like most of the two, Apple II community these days is probably using a 2E enhanced or newer, but like I say, I don't have any actual data to back that up. It was something that I gave a fair amount of thought to, and as I was writing the, the very innermost unrolled data transfer loops for sending data out to these uh, programmed LEDs, I found myself, you know, sort of mentally taking two paths at the same time. You know, one is how do I do this on the classic 6502 and how do I do it on the CO2? And ultimately, there was not a big difference there. You know, we're mostly bottlenecked on just getting the bits out the door. But I found myself debating that. I, th- I think you're right, though. I think targeting the CO2 is, is not crazy these days. You know, some of the 65 CO2 stuff is fairly trivial, like, oh, it's nice, the STZ instruction is nice, saves you an instruction when you're initializing things and so on, but that's fairly trivial to just not use that. But some of the, uh, you know, 
more sophisticated addressing modes, especially for indirect jumping and so on that they that they added in, in the CO2, I think yep. really does make it worthwhile in a lot of projects. So uh, especially if you're doing any kind of uh, fancy graphics or anything like that. So uh, yeah, case, case by yeah. case, I guess. The, the store zero instruction not only saves you an opcode, but it reduces the register pressure because you can keep some other value around in a register. Yeah, that's true. I deal with compiler internals for a living, so I, I think about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent point, for sure, yeah. It would be interesting to see what maybe people can write in and say if they're adamant 2-plus users, I guess, write, write in and, and, uh, and let us know. And, you know, depending on what you're, what you're doing, uh, there can be, it can get difficult to support the whole model range on the high end as well, certain types of things. So, for example, the project that I'm talking about here has mouse support in it. You know, it turns out supporting the mouse on all iterations of the Apple II that could support a mouse uh, is quite uh. a bit of work. <laughs> you know, there was the Apple IIe mouse card, which can be in any, any of several slots. And then there was the Apple IIc, which had several ROM revisions. And in every, virtually every single ROM revision, I think there was like four of them, they moved the mouse firmware. <laughs> so uh, thanks, Apple. So it turns out writing, uh, yeah, and not only that, the actual, the mouse timing is different. The mouse on the 2C versus the 2E mouse card. So the, the 2C actually scales uh, the pulse train differently. Yeah, long story short, it's actually quite a, an alarming amount of work to write a block of code that works on every single possible Apple II that might have a mouse on it. So I'm debating actually doing a Kansas Fest session on this because it took quite a while to work all that out and come up with a block of code that does work. Uh, I'll certainly be sharing the code if anyone wants to add mouse support, um, just so no one else has to suffer the way I have suffered <laughs> this year coming up with this thing. Uh, but yeah, so you know, if you're trying to do that on the high end, then also trying to do some support for the 2 plus on the low end, it gets to a point where you have to pick your battles anyway. I, I can only imagine. I haven't quite, quite gone there yet, but thank you for your, uh, for your contributions there. <laughs> All right, so... Moving along, uh, this is something that a lot of retro outlets have been discussing, but it's kind of neat uh, from an Apple II standpoint. It's this thing called Disco Runner. It is ostensibly a multi-dialect BASIC interpreter, but as far as I can tell, it only does AppleSoft BASIC. If you're going to support BASICs of many flavors, I can't think of a better one to start with. It's not an emulator exactly, but it's more like a runtime environment for basic and specifically so far applesoft so it's sort of an odd thing i'm not exactly sure what i would do with it uh, that i wouldn't just do in virtual 2 because it does primarily just emulate an applesoft environment and it has just enough hardware support that you can do some graphics and things with it but it's not emulating the whole apple 2 it's just kind of emulating enough of the environment so that you can use the graphics related commands it's kind of a weird thing it goes one step further and has some weird features where you can actually so it renders the graphics screens in 3D geometry and so you can actually pan the camera around and look at your low res pixels from behind and various other weird things like this so yeah it's it's an odd duck this thing anyway but I thought I would mention it just because uh, it's applesoft basic related now mike you've got something in the text segment here for I think the first time ever. Do you want to talk about that? Hey. First, we owe our, uh, our, our French friends over at, at uh, Brutal Deluxe an apology. Antoine wrote to, to remind me that we still had not mentioned their, their release of uh, Merlin 32 
that came out, I think, in early January, maybe. So, uh, Antoine, I'm very sorry that it took us uh, this long to, to talk about it. Uh, Merlin 32 is a, a an Apple II uh, assembly language environment, but it's uh, it's for Windows. And as as with everything else that they've released, he's got a nice a long tech write-up over at their webpage. Um, and, and surprisingly for somebody who, like me who hasn't done uh, a lot of assembly programming, it's still really easy to follow. We've definitely been remiss in not mentioning Merlin 32. It is, it's super cool. Uh, for anyone who may not be familiar with, of course, Merlin being the, the original uh, not-from-Apple assembler. And I think most Apple programmers would agree from back in the day it was the best one. Everyone I know who was sort of a serious assembly programmer used Merlin. And Merlin then became Merlin 8, uh, which then on the 2GS uh, they added Merlin 16. So that's where the name comes from. It's uh, hence Merlin 32 on the modern computers. And yeah, it's, you know, I'm not a Windows user, but I have certainly looked at this product a little bit, and I'm sure it would run under Parallels or, or whatever just fine. And it, yeah, it's really excellent. It's a really nice assembler. And, uh, you know, Brutal, Brutal Deluxe is doing more in the 2GS cross-development space than by far than anybody else. Uh, they've just come up with this awesome set of tools, and we can't say enough good things about them. So good to, uh, yeah, plug Merlin32, better late than never, and we will certainly link to it in the show notes. While we're talking about it, I am a little confused. I This, this actually kind of dovetails nicely into what I've been doing on the Apple II recently, and that's... Um, I, I've got uh, the Robert Matola assembly language programming for the Apple II, and I've been diving into that, and, and uh, I've been trying to pick the right version of, of Assembler, and there's what? There's Merlin 8, there's Merlin 8.16, there's Merlin 8.16+, plus, there's Merlin Pro, and I don't know which one I should be using. Yeah, there are a lot of different uh, iterations of Merlin over the years. Now, are you wanting to program directly on the Apple II? Is that the idea? Yeah, I think I think that's what I'm going to start with because it's just simple stuff that I that I'm doing at this point. You know, if I ever get to the point where I'm doing a serious project, then I'll you know switch over to CC65 or something like that. But uh, I think I would just start with Merlin 8. Honestly, uh, it's you know it's a classic okay. for a reason. I certainly used it lots back in the day. I've, of course, if you're on the 2GS, I would say Merlin 16. But yeah, I think just original classic Merlin 8. Uh, Merlin, you know, was originally just Merlin, and then they renamed it Merlin 8 when the later right. versions started coming out. So I think if you look for Merlin 8, you'll probably find the last sort of version of it that ran on the 8 bits uh, alone, and that that would you know, ensure that you had all the bug fixes and features and stuff that were added to it. So uh, I'm not familiar with Merlin 8.16. It's possible that is a still newer version that ran on the 8 bits still, but uh, Merlin 8 would definitely be a good choice, I think. All right. Well, I will give that a shot. Cool. Yeah, that's a. Let me know how that goes. It's. Uh, I think, in my humble opinion, uh, a bit of a masochist exercise in this day and age to write assembly uh, <laughs> on the machine itself. Um, sure. Uh, just because, yeah, we're so spoiled by big screens. And the thing about assembly language is that you know every mistake you make brings the whole machine down. So uh, you you right. spend a lot of time <laughs> rebooting. Yeah, definitely keep me posted on that. I'm curious to see uh, how it goes for someone kind of learning Apple II assembly language uh, for the first time. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay, and I guess we have one more item, and that's uh, mine, and it's sort of a little teaser sneak preview, if you will. Obviously, um, Reactive Micro has been slumbering for quite some time now. Henry and Anthony, the guys behind it, um, you know, they shut they shut the shop down, a f- a, I guess, a couple of years now, it's been, and said, hey, we'll be back at some point. They wanted to do some other projects, and they've been helping David Schmick recently get the Apple Pi card, the Apple II Pi card 
produced, and uh, Henry has sent along a couple of things for me to play with that I get to tell you about. The first is the No Slot Clock 2C, which is a low-profile No Slot Clock that um, that they've they've created that'll fit better in the 2C. Um, it's kind of tight and under that keyboard there. The neat thing about it is it also has a replaceable battery, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. And he sent along the Transwarp GS oscillator. It's a scalable oscillator, so um, you don't have to swap out the oscillator uh, every single time you, you want to change speeds on your 2GS. So just so we're clear here, they sent you uh, samples of these devices? They did, yes. Wow. I am insanely jealous, let me just say. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's fantastic. <laughs> Part of me mentioning this was hopefully that Henry will hear this and go, "Oh, Quinn wants one of these too, and we'll send some your way to review." Yes, uh, I don't know if the I don't know if the no slot clock also works in the two C plus, but if it does, yes, I would absolutely love one. Uh, I'm super excited by that device, so it's it's a really awesome yeah, design. So no prices or anything announced at this point, but uh, those will be going into production soon. Awesome. So with me today, uh, I have um, Sean Fahey, who runs atruecentral.com, and you probably seen him in A2 Central Chat if you hang out there and uh, all the places where A2, Apple II hobbyists hang out. Um, hello, Sean. How are you? Hey, Mike. Doing pretty good. Good. And you and I are here tonight because we have some fun stuff to talk about. Yeah, I got some cool stuff from uh, Ultimate Apple II and Reactive Micro. Yeah, I got, uh, I got two items. Did you get the same things that I did? I think I did. I got the, uh, the no-slot clock and the uh, scalable oscillator. Yeah, so I got I got both of those two, and um, let's see, we've both had them, well, I've had mine for, I guess, about a week now, and I've had a chance to install them and, and play with it, uh, but first, I'd like to hear your opinions. Let's uh, start with the no-slot clock. How did that work for you? Uh, it worked pretty good. Uh, I, I like it that it's uh, much more lower profile, mm-hmm. and uh, that made it it just barely squeaked into uh, the Apple IIc with the Apple IIc memory card. Yeah, yeah. I have the uh, the Chinook card, which I think is a clone of the the actual Apple card. Right. And uh, I had the I had the same uh, experience that you did. It's it fits. It's tight, but it does it does fit in there, which is nice because those old Dallas, uh, the old Dallas Electronics or whatever the company's name is, it those didn't fit in that in the Apple IIc if you if you had your memory card in there. Right. Too tall. Yep. And, and I like also that, that this has a, uh, a replaceable battery, which I think is just really awesome. Yeah, it's a big plus. I, I, I don't think anyone will ever have to buy another Dallas E chip ever again. Well, yeah, and I think, I think they stopped making them, I don't know, five or seven years ago now, something like that. So well, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I don't think they're available new anymore, which kind of sucks because you have to, um, at least my experience is maybe I'm just not looking in the right place, but my experience now is that you got to get them from eBay and, and there are, there are a couple of sellers who have, you know, large amounts of these things laying around, I guess, but, uh, you, you never know how old they are. And, and some of them, they show up and the battery's dead. So having, having that replaceable battery, I think is really awesome. Yeah. That's, that's full of win. I, I'm really looking forward to, uh, I mean, this this looks like it's going to be a, a fairly inexpensive. Uh, th- th- this is uh, this is what they should have done back in the day: put in a coin cell battery. It's just so obviously this is a huge improvement on the overall design. It's it's a no brainer that this is going to be the thing that everybody's going to want to put into their computers. 
Yeah, totally agree. Uh, again, this comes from Reactive Micro and Ultimate Apple II. They got together and collaborated again and came up with a great product. They haven't uh, announced pricing or a ship date yet, but uh, I, I know the models that we got look fairly complete, and uh, I imagine it won't be long before you people out there can buy them as well. Did you get just the, the 1.0 one? Yeah, I did. Okay, I, I also got the 1.1 that's got a few design changes in it. Oh, he's so lucky. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I am. <laughs> anyway, uh, it looks like it's a solid product. Uh, I, it, I don't think it'll be that expensive. Yeah, and, and the nice thing about it is that it's not, I mean, it's not a, a complex thing. You pop it in there, and it's just like... Just like the old ones, you, you go in with your uh, with your no slot clock disc, and it'll see it, and you can adjust the time, and you're off and running. Um, and now the other product we have is a little bit more complex. And what are your thoughts on the the scalable oscillator for the Transwarp GS? Well, after I got my PhD and uh, how to set it up, <laughs> uh, now it's a it's an interesting device. It's really cool. You put in a nice fat fast oscillator and then you can use the switches to kind of change uh, the frequency on the fly well I wouldn't say on the fly but uh, you can really granularly set the the frequency on the oscillator and uh, you know anybody who's into tweaking or getting the maximum juice out of their transwarp GS this will be something they'll want because they can fine tune it to the what is it? The quarters? Yeah, it's a, it's a quarter of a megahertz. So, I mean, you can put it at whatever speed you want. Now, um, it's not um, it's not something that you can set like you know in the in the Transwarp control panel. Yeah, would, that would be no. the awesomest thing ever. But I don't even know if that's a possibility. So, if you want to change speed, you will have to you know open your your two GS and go in and, and fiddle with these dip switches. Now, the dip switches uh, there's a there's a bank of them, and that sort of for me anyway kind of presented a, a bit of a challenge. What about you? Yeah, I had to. Uh you know, I'm getting older, so I had to get out the pen light, the magnifying <laughs> glass, and a toothpick to set those switches. Yeah, and they're kind of at a, a sort of a weird angle. Like they, they, they're, I don't know if they're upside down, but when you look at them, it's it's a challenge. Um, now, I I, a, I got a set of instructions, fortunately, from Henry. You know, um, there, there's like a, a little equation that you can do um, if you really, you know, for you really math geek types out there that that can tell you which pins, um, which um, which switch needs to be in which position for the speed you want. But fortunately, Henry sent, sent along these instructions that have uh, a nice chart. It shows every speed on the quarter of a megahertz and what the settings are automatically, which for a guy like me is a lot easier. Yeah, that you if you don't want to lose that chart. <laughs> yeah. Uh make a copy, make a PDF, post it all over the place. Don't lose that cuz uh it, it can be a little bit maddening. Um I it I didn't notice now granted I'm still working on the older um original Transwarp 2GSs. I I don't have one of the the the, uh, the fancy new ones that's coming from Reactive Micro yet, so I, I didn't notice, and I guess I wouldn't because it's just an oscillator. Didn't get any. Um, I, I got about the same speed as before. It's just that I didn't have to go in and you know b- dig through a, the drawer of oscillators and find the one that I wanted. So I you know I have one that that goes at about twelve and a half, and that's as fast as I think that one's ever going to go. And I've got another one that I can get to about ten, and I, I I tested both of those and got about the same results. So. Yeah, I did as well. The uh, 
the, the thing about the uh, the skillable oscillator, I still had to take it off the board in order to set it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, you know, yeah, like you said earlier, it was at that weird angle. And uh, it, it it's it's nice to have, so you don't have a you don't have to have a sh- uh, a drawer full of oscillators to try if you're into the overclocking the Transwarp GS. But uh, you're still taking it in and out of the socket. Right. Yeah. And, and that's that's work and that's wear on the sockets. Um, you know, you you'd mentioned a, a nice term in, in the email earlier today. You said this is a, a tweaker's toy, and I, I definitely. Uh, agree with that. You know, if you're going to be playing around with speeds a lot, this is great because you, you, you know, you don't have to, where's that, where's that, you know, uh, where's that 10.75 that I was looking for. Um, but I think for most users, they're going to set it once they'll find a comfortable speed, you know, kind of play around and that'll be it. They won't mess with this again. I think, uh, what anyone who buys this, uh, should do is they, they take the, the chart with the, uh, dip switch settings and, Tape a copy of it to the inside of their case because that's, <laughs> that's where a, they're gonna. That's where they're gonna find it, and where that's where they're gonna need it. That's a really good idea. I think I'm gonna do that as soon as we get off the line here. The um, uh, they haven't announced again. There, there's no price on this yet, but it's a fully functioning product. I had no problems with it. It worked great, and um, yeah. So I, I'm hoping, I'm expecting that that these will be available for sale soon. I think they're going to make an announcement probably sometime within the next week. Yeah, and uh, I really hope, really, really, really hope that um, you know we'll be able to get our hands on the uh, on the the, the brand new uh, Transwarp GS that they've cloned. Um, do you have any 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 more information on that than than what you posted over on a2central.com? Well, uh, Henry told me that he's planning on sending out a board to you and I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I can't wait. <laughs> I, uh, I I can I. I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Did uh, did he happen to, to tell you about any of the anything behind the scenes or what they had to do to crack those gals that that have uh, been such a a pain so far? Nothing specifically. I, I knew they had to uh, shave a, an original transwarp down mm-hmm. so that they could you know document it and send it off to China. Uh, you know, Henry's uh, Henry, Jeff Body, and uh, a few other people. They're they're all working together on you know getting these clones out to us, uh, and uh, I think Henry and Jeff Body are probably the most knowledgeable people about the transwarp on the planet right now, aside from original flight engineering people. Yeah, no kidding. There's a there's a wealth of knowledge there, and I think it's I think it's it's paying off in dividends for for Apple II users. Well, but the the thing is, is uh, you know if you do a little bit of calculating, if you look up the parts. Uh, this is still going to be kind of an expensive board because there's so much silicon on it. The, the, what's going to really happen to what they're going to have to do in order to get this, uh, this board, you know, cheap is at some point it's going to have to probably be redesigned. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, but still, I think that that beats kind of, you know, trying to outbid all the other Apple two users that are hungry on eBay and having these boards go up to five, six, seven hundred dollars. Well, possibly. Uh, it's nice. This is going to make it more available to more people. Sure. Right. All right. Um, well, thank you very much, Sean. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And, and uh, for, for you listeners out there, I, I think Sean's going to have a post up uh, about this probably on the same day that we go live with the show. Um, and uh, yeah, so some great stuff to, to look forward to from Reactive Micro and, and Ultimate Apple, too. It's great talking to you, Mike. You too, Sean. 
Cool. Well, I think that wraps up our tech segment, and I think uh, that actually wraps up our show as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's been another long one, but I think it's been a good one. Um, thank you, Mark, for joining us. It's been we've had a lot of fun. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. This is great, and uh, you can consider me a, an avid listener. Oh, thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody, and uh, until next month, this has been Open Apple. being the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. What are your thoughts on that? Who, me? Smooth. That was good radio.